But the idea that capital makes possible um, the overcoming of scarcity and that it's in the possibility of the overcoming of scarcity that capital starts to look so outdated over, you know, as Mark Kuzer would have it, sort of sort of, of the past, obsolescent, because it might be able to discipline us to do lots of work and develop the productive forces. But when they're already really developed productive forces, but it's not profitable to automate the nasty work. And so it keeps us chained to these nasty forms of work. It's clearly obsolescent. Um, and so it's in the possibility of, of, of abundance that you can generate much of the critique of capitalism and of its social pathologies. And it's important for the left not to lose sight of that possibility and go back to a 20th century mould in which debates between markets and central planning were seen as debates about different ways of administering scarcity and dividing up scarce goods, um, rather than seeing that the possibility of abundance was one of the things that should mark a nail in the coffin of capitalism, because if capitalism can develop productive forces very well, it can't actually uh, give us fulfilled lives in conditions of abundance very well. Hello, and welcome back to the Musing Mind podcast. I'm Oshan Jarrow, and today's episode is unlike anything uh, that I've put out before. I'm speaking with Barnaby Rain today. Uh, Barnaby is an intellectual historian working on his PhD at Columbia, where he studies languages of the end of capitalism in social and political thought since Marx. And he traces how what he calls the problem of transition right, the challenge of overcoming relations of domination on which our lives depend, right, the, the quagmire of trying to move beyond a system that nevertheless still props up our lives so that moving beyond it threatens to unprop and unsettle our lives in various ways, how this problem of transition became a crisis that really curtailed the visions of ending capitalism and moving to whatever comes next throughout the 20th century. Barnaby is also a teacher at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, where he taught a course on capitalism and the self, which I took and loved, and the content of which is the topic of our conversation today. Our, our basic question is this, how has capitalism throughout its history produced not only goods and services, but our subjective experience or our sense of what our self is and how we relate to other people? And you can see the resonance with my basic interest throughout the podcast so far, right? How economic uh, systems are deeply intertwined with consciousness. And specifically as an intellectual historian, Barnaby is interested in how some of our most celebrated thinkers have both approached and answered this question. So the bulk of this episode is a walk through history where Barnaby leads us from Jean-Jacques Rousseau to Emile Durkheim to Georgi Lukacs to Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer, to Herbert Marcuse, to Michel Foucault, and finally to the present moment, all the while inviting us into the, the various ways that these people have thought about the relationship between capitalism and the self, and how the tradition of, of what he describes as social pathology offers a, a conceptual framework to make sense of these various perspectives and, and have them hang together throughout history as a kind of coherent uh, question that evolves throughout time. Uh, we could have done an episode on each figure individually, uh, but Barnaby engages in what I think is an absolutely heroic effort of covering an immense amount of ground in the time we had. Uh, the conversation wound up running for about three hours, and I was conflicted on the best way to put it all together, right? A three-hour dense podcast can be 
uh, a lot. <laughs> but splitting it up into smaller episodes felt kind of like amputating something that otherwise hangs together really well. And, and taken as a whole, I think what Barnaby lays out here is incredibly powerful and, and brilliant. So what I've done to make navigating the conversation easier for those who don't want to hang around for the whole thing is in the show notes page, I usually create these time maps, right, with uh, timestamps attached to the different topics we cover. And for this conversation, I made a very detailed time map that shows the timestamp for each particular thinker that we cover so that if you want to dive in and hear what Barnaby has to say about the Frankfurt School and the culture industry or Foucault and neoliberalism, you can find the relevant timestamp and just skip right to that part. But in the meantime, this is the full conversation. And I think for those interested in these questions, it's a really exciting resource to be able to, to offer in one piece. Uh, we mentioned a lot of links, books, and essays throughout the conversation, all of which I have linked to on the show notes page, which can be found at musingmind.org slash podcast and clicking on the relevant episode. If you enjoy the podcast and want to help it exist, you can share it on social media. You can leave a, a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps new listeners find the show and also reassures uh, potential guests that people don't hate speaking with me. And if you're truly compelled to support the show and have the financial means, you can become a Patreon supporter by offering a small monthly donation, like one or two dollars, the stability of which allows me to invest more time and equipment into improving the podcast. You can find links to all of that on the show page or just at patreon.com slash Oshanjaro. All right, please enjoy my conversation with Barnaby Rain. Barnaby Rain, thank you so much for joining me and, and welcome to the Music Mind podcast. Thanks for having me. So I'll start off by asking you just to give listeners a quick idea about who you are and what the what the questions and ideas are that your work engages with. So I am writing my PhD in history at Columbia University in New York, and I'm interested in the decline in the 20th century of thinking about the end of capitalism. Uh, I'm interested in the idea that a highly particular way of thinking about capitalism as a historically finite social system um, that could be ended by a combination of its own organic tendencies and the political activity um, of, 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 of actors uh, placed in a, in a position that allowed them to be uh, very powerful, that a combination of those things would, would allow a political theory of social transformation, thinking the question of the end of capitalism as a politically live question. That, I think, was the world that someone like Marx occupied, someone like Lenin occupied, taught a class on Marx, teaching a class on Lenin soon. Um, and then my PhD traces how they thought about capitalism as, as quite different from ways that we now think about capitalism, and then how uh, the ability to think about the end of capitalism declined so that by the end of the 20th century, it wasn't uh, a widespread political horizon. Um, and I have very particular views about uh, at least part of the answer for that decline that I think hasn't been sufficiently explored, especially around, um, I take thinkers in Britain as my kind of uh, case study, and especially around questions of the decline, the end of formal empire, and how uh, post-imperial world transformed thinking about politics in many ways that haven't, I think, been sufficiently explored and explained. So that's what my work is about. And that opens up a series of much broader questions about how should we think about capitalism? How do we think about this thing called capitalism in particular, highly changing ways? And we're not always conscious of the changes. We read Marx today and don't realise that he was writing before the ascent of something called the economy as a language, mm. um, which I'll talk a bit about, I'm sure. And then what happens in the wake of, of, of the decline of thinking about capitalism? So I've written and spoken a lot about contemporary anti-Semitism, for example, which I read as a kind of miserable form of, of, of supposedly anti-elitist politics that arises in, in the wake of uh, the, the failure of anti-capitalism. Um, so that's my broad interest. How 
should we think about capitalism? How do we think about capitalism? How has it changed? Um, and that brings me to the material that I'm going to be talking about today, which is an interest in traditions of social pathology, which is one highly particular way of thinking about a critique of capitalism and a way I think often far from the mainstream of discussion um, in, mm. in certainly in the West today. Yeah. And so moving then, I guess, from the broad interest to the specific, as you mentioned, but we'll talk about today. The question that, that you and I are here to explore is something vaguely like how capitalism shapes the self, right? How it informs and infects our, not infects, although that's a good Freudian slip, affects our uh, subjective experience of who and what we are, what the fact that we live in a society that is characterized by the capitalist mode of production has to do with the development and patterns and, and qualities of our individual consciousness, right? Or that, that chamber of subjectivity through which we experience the world. And specifically, you've done a lot of both studying and teaching on the intellectual history of this question, right, of exploring how various philosophers and theorists and economists have approached and answered it. So you and I have, have kind of put together a structure for the conversation today. Uh, there's a lot of, of material to go over. So we're going we're gonna to define the question together a little more. Um, and then for about maybe half a little more of the conversation, we're going to kind of move through the intellectual history of the question. You're going to guide us through different responses to it. Um, and then once we've kind of worked our way back up to the present day, we'll get into a more um, free-flowing, open conversation. But let's start by by expanding and fleshing out the question, what does it mean to ask how capitalism shapes the self, right? How is capitalism even relevant to that kind of question? And, and where does social pathology fit into all that? So let's start with that strange term, social pathology. A pathology is just any persistent behavior, perhaps compulsive behavior, uh, which is damaging to our own, to, to the flourishing of the person um, engaging in that behavior, damaging perhaps to their happiness. How you define these things becomes, as we'll see, very thorny. A social pathology then is a term that exists in social science, uh, something like alcoholism or depression that might have a clear social cause. So for example, if a factory closes in a town where that factory was the major employer, and you then see a spike in alcoholism um, among newly redundant workers who want worked in that factory. Social scientists might identify that as a clearly pathological behavior, they'd say alcoholism, um, and, and they might identify it as socially caused, as a social pathology. So that's where social science uh, leaves us. Then we get entering the picture, the broader questions of a social philosophy, uh, especially coming out of the Frankfurt School. So Axel Honneth is the most famous contemporary uh, Frankfurt School philosopher and, and the sort of most famous um, propagator of this term. Well, which, which is to, to, to broaden the scope by treating as pathological, not just um, anything that a doctor uh, or a mental health specialist might recognize as pathological, like alcoholism um, or depression, um, but by asking instead uh, how we might think of forms of behavior much more generic and uh, apparently unextraordinary um, in capitalist society as also pathologies created by capitalist society. So this is to immediately to ask what kind of critique of capitalism do we want when we're trying to assail capitalism? And this is to put us back in touch with a tradition of thinking the critique of capitalism that came before and beyond the dominance of that thing, that idea, the economy, which says capitalism is something that happens in this sort of uh, package parceled off space called the economy, which is separate from culture or society or the self. And the economy is the realm where you produce and distribute goods and services. And so a critique of capitalism might be, uh, might assail it for producing poverty or inequality, material uh, 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 goods, 
Now, the criticism of capitalism causing poverty and inequality might be central to, to the question of social pathology, but social pathology asks a kind of broader question um, about how uh, capitalism affects the self and not just uh, whether it can give us uh, nice TVs. Um, so to take two examples for thinking this question. Mm-hmm. If you think about Max Weber's classic text, The Protestant Ethic, um, Weber's often remembered as a, as a chronicler of rationalization, the kind of desacralization of society, the replacement of mystery and religion as the structuring norms of society by instead a coldly rational ethic, what Marx called the icy waters of egotistical calculation. A capitalist wants to make profit. Um, he doesn't care whether it's moral or not. He just wants to increase his assets. Um, Weber is remembered as the chronicler of this rationalization and, and, and the coming of an associated spirit of bureaucracy very generally in capitalist society. But there's a, there's a danger of narrowing him there. What kind of rationalization? Weber, like Marx, talking about the icy waters of egotistical calculation, has quite a rich sense of the multiple possible rationalities. Mm. And in this book, in this text, The Protestant Ethic, he treats the kind of cult of work and endless accumulation, which is necessary or which is kind of um, uh, mandatory as a subject of capitalist society. And he treats that as something strange, especially in chapter two of the text. He, he has this kind of throwaway moment where he says it, it's not natural. Um, so here you have a form of life which is entirely endemic to capitalist society, the need for what economists would call compound growth, right? Endless accumulation and so endless work. You don't say I've made enough for the week. Now I'm going to stop and rest. If you're a capitalist, you have to keep going and keep, uh, keep competing. Um, and Weber identifies an, an origin point um, for that ethic in Calvinism. He's interested in people like Ben Franklin as well, um, uh, uh, to explain the propagation of a form of rational life, but a, a peculiarly kind of irrational form of rationality, or, or, or you might hmm. say a pathological form of rationality. Think in the present then about Lauren Ballant's work on cruel optimism, um, hmm. the American dream as uh, an attachment, uh, a, a form of desire, uh, which might ultimately damage you, uh, which might be damaging to your own happiness or your own flourishing. Um, so this is, whether it's in Weber or more contemporarily in Berlant, this is to take um, not just recognisably pathological forms of living, but celebrated forms of living in our world as being pathological. And that mm. is the radicalism of the tradition of, of social pathology as a critique of capitalism. The last thing I'll say about that is that uh, there are many questions raised by this uh, uh, approach. And I just want to raise two, I think, um, which Axel Honneth in, in highlighting social pathology as he thinks is one of the central or even sometimes the central tradition of social philosophy. I think actually Honneth does, a, does quite a poor ans- uh, um, job of answering these questions. Uh, firstly, the question is raised, on what basis and according to what norm do we diagnose a form of life as pathological, right? Because someone's mm-hmm. going to come along and say, you know, why are you telling me that endless work is pathological? It seems to me perfectly normal and fine. Um, right. So uh, h- how do we, how do we, uh, how do we call it pathological? What's our, what's our yardstick for doing so? Um, mm-hmm. Honneth has on, in, in writing a, a particular answer um, that I find quite uncompelling, which is to conceive societies as kind of Platonist organic unities. And so that uh, society's pathological, if like a machine, uh, not all its parts are working together in harmony to, an, to, a, to a given end. Um, and that seems to be riven with problems, not least that we could think of capitalism as working perfectly coherently towards a set of ends that just might not be ends we would like. Um, right. And secondly, the question is, what kinds of effective politics can hope to disrupt the reproduction of pathological forms of life. And on this question, um, I think the Frankfurt School tradition of which Honneth comes, from which Honneth comes, is, is quite poor at, at offering answers. And I think other traditions mm. are actually better. Um, 
so he gives us the kind of normative frame. Um, we should think about social pathology as a bad thing and not much in the way of the strategic political frame. How do we disrupt its operations? Um, but I think that this raising of the question of social pathology puts us back in touch with a long lost um, and yet very long and uh, noble tradition of thinking the critique of capitalism. Yeah, I, I think one of the ways to to think about social philosophy, which would be that broader parent of social pathology, is that when we are thinking about, for example, why individuals are the way they are, right? Social philosophy would claim that the starting point for that question, for that analysis, has nothing to do with the individual herself, but with the society into which they are born. That that the society is the starting point, and you can contrast that with views of folks like Hobbes or Bentham, who take the individual as the rightful starting point. Right? They would believe that societies are the products of individuals, whereas social philosophies might claim that individuals are the, the products of societies. Yes. You know, when Margaret Thatcher said there is no such thing as society, only individual men and women, the kind of extreme um, uh, 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 sort of opposite of that that a social philosopher might give you, which I think is, is, is equally too crude, but would be to say there are no such thing as individual men and women. I mean, the very codification of those people as men and women. Um, uh, mm. All of these things are the work of society. In fact, Thatcher said there are individual men and women and there are families, as if families mm. weren't a, a, a socially... Um, constructed thing. Um, so yes, so rather than starting from the individual, as say modern economics does, um, or as you say Hobbes does, methodological individualism says you build up a picture of society from the individual. And a social philosopher is, is going to say that packs in a huge set of assumptions about how the individual came to be that way. So an economist might ask, how do we meet the preferences of individuals? And as someone interested in social pathology might ask, how are the preferences of individuals shaped in ways right. that might actually be damaging to their own flourishing? Um, exactly. And I think it's I think it's cool that I like that you brought in Lauren Berlant. She, I think, put it in the most concise way I've read it yet in Cruel Optimism. She said something like, uh, subjectivity is laced through with structural causality. Mm. And I, I just loved that, that way that she put it. I thought that was a, a very concise way to do it. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, but anyway, we have a, a lot of history to, to go back through. Mm. So let's get into it. Where does this this kind of tradition begin for you? Where do you want to begin uh, looking at these questions? Well, I'll, I'll begin in the same place that Honneth um, begins, um, though, as I say, I have all sorts of differences with his approach to the, to the tradition. But that's with um, perhaps my favourite figure in the whole history of social thought, um, and that's Rousseau. Um, mm. And uh, it's helpful to start with Rousseau's uh, three discourses. Um, this is the sort of early Rousseau before he writes The Social Contract. Um, uh, the most famous of these is the second discourse, the discourse on the origin of inequality, and that's the one that's most powerful for our purposes. But if we start with Rousseau's first discourse, um, um, uh, the first discourse is, I think, an extraordinary text. It, it, it's, an, it's an attempt to answer the question, uh, has the progress of arts and sciences uh, improved improved the world? Um, in, other, in other words, you might say glibly, is this thing called the Enlightenment? And he's writing in the you know, early 18th century. Is this thing, the Enlightenment, a good thing? And Rousseau is often misread canonically, I think, as giving a particular answer to this question, a negative answer. No, the progress of the arts and sciences has not made us better. Um, in fact, the powerful thing that he does is to reframe the question, to insist that the Enlightenment is asking the wrong question. He has a particularly powerful footnote about Montaigne, in which he remarks sort of sarcastically and with great enjoyment, I think, that Montaigne observes the happiness and the apparent stability and social solidarity of indigenous peoples in North America. And Montaigne writes at great length about how they seem to have societies that are much better in every respect than European societies. And then, Rousseau uh, comments, Montaigne writes in horror, but they wear no breeches, you know, but, 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 but they're not dressed like European gentlemen. And so that sort of counteracts all of these other um, um, social goods. So um, 
the, the right question for Rousseau is not the question that the Enlightenment asks, which is, uh, you know, do we have lots of knowledge? Do we have lots of culture? Um, but are we free? And are we free in a very particular sense where uh, not to be free is to be dependent on a power wholly external to ourselves? So if I'm the subject of a king who never interferes with my life, I go about my business entirely as I'd like. Hobbes would say I'm, I'm, I'm meaningfully free, um, that the king isn't coming in. And a modern liberal would also say Hobbes is the kind of secret origin point of modern liberalism. Uh, the, the king isn't, isn't uh, interfering in my day to day affairs. Uh, Rousseau would say the fact that uh, at any point the king could do so, the fact that another words, I don't actually govern myself, but I'm subject to the arbitrary will of that king. And I'm just lucky that he chooses not to interfere with me, makes me not free. Similarly, and I think powerfully for our purposes, if I'm a smoker, right, if I freely choose to go and buy a pack of cigarettes every day or multiple packs, an econ- a modern economist would say, as Hobbes would say, as modern liberals would say, I'm free, right? And Rousseau would say, I'm not morally free. I am a slave to desires which inhibit perhaps my flourishing. You know, they might give me lung cancer and kill me, um, or they might make me completely miserable every day until I've had my cigarette. And so I am not, I'm dependent, not simply on a developed sense of my own will. Um, now, why does this matter? Why is it important to be free? I think for Rousseau it matters because, uh, this is how I read him anyway, because he thinks that different kinds of people get produced by conditions of freedom or unfreedom. And this is where we get to the question, the beginning of the question of social pathology and capitalism. Now, Rousseau doesn't have that term capitalism, neither by and large does Marx. It's really a late 19th century, early 20th century. Uh, I mean, Werner Zombart's probably the first person to sort of uh, use it canonically. Um, mm. But Rousseau identifies private property as a key origin point in the second discourse. I mean, he has this extraordinary opening to a section of the second discourse where he says all the evils in the world belong to the first person who put their spade in the ground and said, this is mine, my private property. Um, uh, Private property produces conditions of unfreedom that then produce us in particular ways as particular kinds of people in ways that Rousseau thinks are damaging to us. So in the first discourse, Rousseau had told us that the Enlightenment, with its concern for arts and literature and culture, was asking a question that obscured what he regards as politically the most powerful question, which is not, am I clever, but am I free? In the second discourse, he treats the question, am I free, by honing in on private property. Property is a problem because it makes us dependent on other people, right? The poor must please the rich in order to earn the means of living. Right, I must hawk myself out for a job and then satisfy my boss. And the rich must live in paranoid fear of the poor who are jealous of them or at the most extreme point who might expropriate their wealth or just steal from them. So what results is thoroughly novel kinds of people this thing Rousseau calls amour propre, living in a way in which you look to others and see yourself through the eyes of others and judge yourself as others see you in a kind of quite quite frightened way. Uh, if I'm poor, I must perform uh, servility to the wealthy. And if I'm rich, I must perform power and strength to the poor so they don't steal my money. Rousseau hates actors who he sees as, as professional examples of amour propre, right? Having to perform a certain image of yourself. So we're often told that capitalism relies on self-interest, but Rousseau is very helpful in distinguishing two different kinds of self-interest. Amour de soi, the perfectly benevolent kind of self-preservation that says, I'm in the state of nature and there are some berries on a tree and I want to eat those berries to live and I'll do that and there are enough berries to go around for everyone. And amour propre, which is this much more damaging way of, of, of relating to others in which I have to perform certain images of myself. Um, so th- the fact that this text is so uh, difficult to read, uh, I think, and to teach, is that where lots of texts in the history of social theory and social philosophy um, 
construct a set of claims that they want to persuade you about. Rousseau's second discourse is really about trying to undo and use lots of rhetorical work constantly to undo a thing that you think about the world, a single thing, which is naturalizing this world of amour propre that Rousseau thinks actually results from private property. And so the great antagonist um, uh, for him is Hobbes, for whom we begin in a state of nature where we're already competitive individuals with amour propre. Rousseau thinks that's produced by private property. And so a real state of nature would be so thoroughly different from that. It would be a world before even the existence of language. Um, and it would be a world of amour de soi and pitié, which is uh, caring about our own self-preservation and, and, and being upset when others suffer. Um, but not yet this crucial, ubiquitous, deeply, deeply general feature of our society, of our world, which is amour propre and which owes its origins to private property. Hmm. Yeah. You know, so I used to, I used to think that Karl Marx was the first person to systematically suggest that something as nebulous as consciousness was the effect rather than the cause of the material world, right? That the mm. basic kind of tangible organization of society is what gives rise to things like consciousness. Uh, mm. Marx famously standing Hegel on his head here, um, flipping that the previous understanding, which held that first there is consciousness, first there is the idea. And from these, you know, the material world follows kind of placing consciousness as the horse that pulls the wagon of society and Marx flips it and says, you know, mm. society is the, the horse. Um, but I think that in a way, especially as you outlined it here, Rousseau kind of predates Marx on this, something that you spoke about uh, just now, I think by a different name, you, you've spoken about as split subjectivity. Mm. Um, and like you mentioned for Rousseau, he didn't have the language of, of capitalism, but he did focus in on private property as kind of the the event in the basic organization of the world that would kind of ripple out to affect the consciousness of the citizens. Mm. So I wanted to ask you uh, maybe to expand on on this idea of split subjectivity and, and more specifically, it, it does it make sense to see this as a kind of predecessor to Marx when he began talking about things in relation to base and superstructure? Is this kind of a predating of Marx's idea of materialism? Mm. Well, so much to say there. The first thing I'd say is that although I won't get a, uh, there are so many thinkers I could talk about. I don't know if I'll have time to talk about him today, but I think that Hegel also belongs in the tradition of thinking about social pathology. Um, it is absolutely the case for Hegel that the forms of life that we inhabit are historically determined and that the particular kinds of recognition, which is Hegel's uh, central normative goal, um, and indeed freedom, uh, which is also a central normative goal that Hegel takes from Rousseau, um, the particular kinds of recognition and freedom that we can achieve in different social worlds are dependent on the historical question of their construction. So it isn't like there's just an idea and in any kind of historical uh, society, you can impose this idea called freedom. Um, indeed, there is a contemporary trend that interests me a lot of, of reading Hegel, um, people like Pinkard and Pippin and uh, one of my professors at Columbia who's influenced my thinking on social pathology, Fred Neuhauser, um, uh, that stresses, as Neuhauser puts it, there's a lot more materialism in Hegel's idealism and actually a lot more idealism in Marx's materialism than is commonly thought. <laughs> um, yeah. So I want, to, I want to sort of challenge that, that binary just a little. Mm -hmm. um, by the time, you know, Mark, the kind of young, energetic Marx is very keen on turning Hegel on his head. Uh, the phrase, yes, comes from an introduction to capital. But by the time you get to capital, Marx is again dealing with the importance of abstractions in, in framing our sense of the social world, where perhaps as a young man, he considered all talk of, of abstract ideas as kind of guff that got in the way of the cold, hard, concrete truth of material relations. By the time you get to capital, there's this thing called the value form, which is an abstraction that governs our, our, our social mm -hmm. relations. Um, so yes, I want to push against some of the kind of Hegel-Marx binary. But in terms of the, 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 I mean, there's so much to say about the Rousseau-Marx relationship. So I'll just highlight one contrast. 
I mentioned Rousseau's first discourse and then his second, and I promised that I would say something about all three. Well, his third discourse is the discourse on political economy, which sort of predates many of the ideas uh, set out in more depth in, in, in the social contract, especially the idea of the general will. What's interesting there is Rousseau's writing about this thing called political economy, and it doesn't look anything like our sense of economics or even our sense of political economy, right? There are certainly no tables and there are certainly no GDP figures. Um, but it's, 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 the difference is much deeper than that, right? Rousseau's, and, and might be a helpful slight contrast with Marx as well, Rousseau's sense of what political economy is, of course, the origins from Oikos, the, the management of the household. Um, Rousseau's sense of what political economy is, is all about how you construct sovereign power in order to make people a particular way and in order to make people free. Now, I think this isn't so radically different from Adam Smith, who writes The Wealth of Nations, Not the Wealth of Economies. And the idea of statecraft and the workings of sovereign power is central to Smith. We've lost that a bit in our sense of the economy as radically separate from politics. You know, these are two different realms. Um, But importantly, in Rousseau's discourse on political economy, there's a slightly tragic note, it seems to me, buried perhaps, and and, and perhaps I'm projecting this after having read Marx, but um, Rousseau doesn't think that this private property that he's identified in the second discourse as the origin of all these evils is something you can overcome. And so instead, Rousseau in that third discourse, and again in the social contract, wants to find ways of living with private property. And he thinks that a republican form of government, that's not republican in the American sense, it's a republic in which in which I am sovereign, I am only subject to laws that I myself make, a, a, a real democracy in which not I elect some politicians who then for five years can do whatever they like, but in which I'm constantly actively engaged in creating the conditions of rule under which I must then live. That kind of of, of active republican sovereignty is for Rousseau a way of, it seems to me, not actually abolishing the problem of amour propre, which he's tied to private property, but just uh, making it more livable, right? Abolishing a condition in which private property is tied to the arbitrary power of kings and can't be regulated, um, or in which we're simply controlled, we might say today, by corporate power, and and we can't regulate it through republican uh, democratic sovereignty. Um, So there is this, I think, slight tension that Rousseau doesn't quite talk about between his naming of the origin of the problem, private property, and his naming of a solution which doesn't actually overcome private property. And I'll come back to this, I think, in different different thinkers and their, their, their thinking about the solution to social pathology. Marx is distinctive because he thinks he's found a solution, not because he's smarter than Rousseau, but because he's writing at a different historical moment from Rousseau. And this is why Rousseau is to him a bourgeois thinker, because he's writing where there has been an agent created by capitalism, the proletariat, a a, a large collective subject, which which is in a position to overcome capitalism, transcend private property, not as a utopian dream, but as a realisation of its own collective self-interest, and therefore uh, at at least likely or possible, uh, some readers of Marx think inevitable um, outcome of the process. So that is to establish a historical difference between Rousseau, who's writing before industrialisation and before the existence of the proletariat, and Marx, on the other hand, who has a much more radical sense of the solution to the problem of social pathology. Mm, yeah, and, and maybe the last element I'll bring in about Rousseau, but this is also a framing of yours that you put it previously that I thought was really, really interesting was to say that Rousseau almost saw private property as the institutionalization of interdependence, right? That with a society defined by private property, we have no choice, as you said, but to depend on the labor of one another. Um, mm. We can no longer be these entirely self-reliant humans, hunter-gathering, um, since everything is divided up, labor follows. And this kind of forced interdependence on one hand invites opportunities for exploitation, right? Uh, if you have no choice but to depend on me for something and I have more than you, I can exploit you in a way that Marx goes on to elaborate. But th- the basic question, um, as you put it for Rousseau, is not how to undo interdependence, but how do we render our dependence on each other 
a condition for our flourishing rather than our oppression, right? This is this is the kind of question you framed. I, I'm just delighted. I'm delighted by all of your putting back my own words to me. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I, go on. No, yeah, it was it was such a great framing. I wanted to make sure we got it in explicitly here because it, it hasn't left my head, as you can tell. But um, yeah, I, I think in a way you've answered the question. But for Rousseau, when he's asking this question of how do we change the condition such that it is one for flourishing as opposed to oppression, his answer in that time, which as you said is is situated in a particular historical context, is, is essentially a real democratic kind of republican form of government. Is that kind of his vision of how we get there? Yes, and I, I think that. Um uh, you raise a very important point in that Rousseau uh, is misread in his own moment as calling for a reversal of a process that in fact he takes to be inevitable. Um, and mm-hmm. this is something that I think an area where Hegel is thinking like Rousseau, there are various respects in which they're very different, in which Rousseau is much more interested in contingency and Hegel is much more interested in the kind of necessary unfolding of a single dialectical process. But Hegel takes from Rousseau a sense of history as something which can't be reversed, but can be perhaps uh, overcome. Uh, that is to say, you might ist- history might give you conditions for the overcoming of its own uh, uh, problems. Um, a, a kind of recuperative view of history, you might say, in which um, uh, you can you can recuperate a lost good of the past in higher form using the achievements of the present. So Rousseau thinks we've lost the ability to live in a state of nature, but uh, in which we were free and independent. We can't be meaningfully independent in modern society, but we could perhaps have a higher form of freedom, which would be living, as you say, in a republican regime of sovereignty in which I'm subject only to laws that I make myself. For Hegel, we've lost the ability to have a kind of uh, a city-state Athenian form of freedom and recognition that he valorizes, but we might be able to have it in a still higher form in the modern bourgeois state. Um, for Marx, um, uh, 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 we, we um, can recuperate something like a kind of unalienated work um, or, or the supersession of, of, of our domination by labour um, uh, of a kind that people in hunter-gatherer societies might have known, but in a much higher form, uh, given the, possi- the material possibilities of what we might now call automation and, and, and the ability to remove ourselves from scarcity and, and live a life of abundance. Um, so for all three, Rousseau, Hegel and Marx, the problem is not reversing history, but recuperating an earlier lost good in a higher form using the achievements of a historical process, which might otherwise immediately appear to us as a tragic and miserable process. Um, uh, uh, it's just that uh, I think Marx radicalizes the possibilities uh, relative to Hegel and Rousseau. Mm, yeah, that's a great way to put it. All right. So we've mentioned that Rousseau's writing was particular to his place in history and that depending on when and where in history one is, that has an effect on the way that they grapple with these questions. So let's move forward to a, a different point in history, to a different person, and that is Emile Durkheim. Right. Durkheim is a French sociologist, one of the fathers of the discipline of sociology and modern social science. He was born in the late 1850s in France. He dies in 1917 in Paris. He's written books that remain relevant today, including his study of suicide, the division of labor, the collective consciousness. Uh, but in terms of our question today, how capitalism makes and remakes the self, where does Durkheim fit into this lineage? What does he bring to the discussion? Um, so if, if we focus on Durkheim's remarkable text on suicide, um, there's, there's a number of things, especially chapter, I think it's chapter five on, on this classic Durkheim category, Anomi. Uh, there are a number of things that, um, uh, are worth, uh, noting. One is that Durkheim moves, again, stresses the, the, the danger of economistic explanations. And he's living in a moment, unlike Rousseau, in which there is 
the prevalence of ways of talking about capitalism or the kind of beginning, really, when Durkheim's writing at the turn of the 20th century, Rousseau's the early 18th century. Um, there are, or the mid 18th century, there, there are ways of, of talking about capitalism as an economic problem. And, and Durkheim wants to uh, push back against those. So he says, you know, if you're trying to connect suicide to capitalism, you might think, well, when people are poor, they commit suicide. But actually, it doesn't seem to be the case that the suicide figures fall with prosperity. So the problem must be something, if, if it's going to be something about capitalism, which it might not be. I think he makes an interesting case about why it is. But if you want to argue that this thing, suicide, is related to capitalism, then you have to make that argument not in an economistic way. It's about how much money I have and capitalism deprives some people through a process of exploitation that enriches others. It must instead be something broader about the social form of capitalism, what it means to live in a capitalist society as what Hegelian scholars would call a form of life, um, which isn't just a question of your material means. And in order to think the question of capitalism as a form of life, Durkheim introduces this new category, different from the kinds of categories Rousseau was working with, anomie. Um, there are two ways, I think, of thinking about um, uh, anomie. I mean, there are lots, but to raise two ways of thinking about anomie. One is a kind of uh, individuation, encountering yourself only as an individual, in uh, lost in a sea of the social world, which is for Durkheim a failure of organic solidarity. So Durkheim thinks if we all, if if, if you and I, Oshan, do the same job and we constantly go to work every day and do the same thing, uh, if our society looks like everyone doing the same thing, say a hunter-gatherer society, in which we all go out and hunt one day, um, mm-hmm. then we might feel a mechanical solidarity. We're all doing the same thing. It's easy for us to feel solidarity with each other. The challenge of capitalist societies with the developed division of labor is the challenge of, of, of instituting an organic solidarity in which I know that even though what I do is very different to what you do, I fit as one piece within a social whole and you fit as another piece within a social whole and we all feel ourselves to be working towards the end of the, 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 the sort of nice reproduction of that social whole. Anomi, the first way to think about anomi is a failure of that process of organic solidarity. So in living in a capitalist society in which endless accumulation is the norm, Durkheim and Weber kind of have a similar moment here. Um, I I seek all from the world. I want to accumulate and collect everything from the world. And so I don't have a comfortable sense of my limited place within it, as I might have done in feudal society, which I was just a peasant and I lived as a peasant. Now in capitalist society, I'm kind of unmoored and I seek all from the world. This isn't to valorize feudal society, but it is to highlight a kind of novel form of anomie in in capitalist society. Um, So capitalism's norms of endless accumulation and also abstract individuality. I'm not just a peasant anymore who does a peasant's work. I am a, a human, a citizen, a consumer, and, I, and, and everything in the world should be open to me. Those norms, endless accumulation, abstract individuality, mean we experience the world as our personal set of challenges to be overcome rather than experiencing our integration with others as life-affirming. So anomie is a failure of organic solidarity. And then secondly, just very briefly, anomie is this socially constructed gap between are endless, limitless goals, compulsive accumulation um, um, in a capitalist society. I must always grow um, or die if I'm a business. Um, and our limited abilities. So Durkheim uses this, um, this sort of fascinating analogy of the divorced man who you know, isn't, isn't tied down in a marriage where he has these limited uh, uh, means, uh, limited sexual capacities. Uh, Durkheim sort of reads marriage in the kind of uh, contractual bourgeois terms that Kant reads it, you might say. Um, mm. uh, you know, I, I have limited uh, sexual faculties and, and I'm a man married to a woman and, and, and she and I have sex. Um, well, 
Well, Durkheim says the divorced man is now told that he has the kind of limitless uh, possibility of having sex with whoever he likes, um, but he has these very limited means. He can't actually do it. And so he experiences this gap between his goals and his ability to fulfill those goals. And the experience of that gap is what it is to live in a capitalist society in which endless accumulation is the norm, but is not, of course, an actual ability. Um, so I think um, um, I think that, that that's a sort of new set of concepts and tools that Durkheim gives us that are useful in thinking about social pathology. Yeah, I think that that kind of example with feudal society is so interesting and rich and helpful to point this out, right? Saying that in feudal society, there was a particular vision of their lives that was kind of imposed or imparted to peasants. That was basically, mm. you're not going to amount to much, you know, go work your fields, come home, get drunk and do it again the next day. You're mm. going to repeat until you die. Um, so insofar as a society can inculcate desire, there wasn't much of a gap there, as you mentioned, between their desires and their capacities to realize those desires. Um, they, the pe peasants had a, a relative uh, capability to achieve the desires that were imparted upon them, whereas capitalist society tells anyone that you can be anything you want if you work hard enough. And so it kind of blows open the ceiling on that desire, irrespective of one's material conditions. Um, and, and not only are you told that you can be anything, but that you should, right? You should work to achieve your dreams. You should never lose that aspiration. And especially amidst kind of the recent cultures of, of uh, you know, hustling and grinding and this kind of a thing, um, wh right. which makes it much easier to have a, a large and for Durkheim friction and anomie inducing gap between your desires and what you might actually be able to achieve um, and kind of amplifying that experience. And you know, of course, it should be mentioned that uh, I think this is even more so kind of amplified by the social media platforms we have today that, you know, deliver this kind of glossy service of, of glamorous lives to all of us as we lie in the dark alone in our bedroom scrolling Instagram and seeing the apparent ways of living that are more desirable, apparently, on the surface to our own. It's almost like a machine designed to, to amplify that experience. But just to come back, I think that's a really helpful way to, to show it that the kind of feudal versus capitalist kind of inculcation of, of desire, how that creates that gap. Yeah, you, you also raise a very important point about the miserable paradox of loneliness. Uh, George Zimmel famously, uh, the sociologist, uh, opens uh, a work on the city with, with the problem, why is it that in spaces that have the most people in them, modern cities, I feel the most alone? Um, mm. And Durkheimian anomie is, is similarly a kind of attempt to gr uh, grapple with that question. Um, it is your. It is precisely your particular integration within a social world. It is a highly particular kind of social world that produces you as tied to it and experiencing alienation from it. Um, and uh, that experience that I think is, I think, is one that can speak to, to lots of us. Um, is one that Durkheim, uh, I think, does 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 quite a good job of um, of, of thinking through um, where the problem is. Um, uh, this socially constructed gap between our socially constructed goals and our real abilities um, to reach them, uh, but also um, the absence of that thing that he valorizes in his other text on the division of labor and society, which is organic solidarity. Um, mm. I think it's worth um, prizing, actually, now that you mention it in this kind of order, um, a similarity and a difference with Rousseau, um, which is worth noting that similarly to Rousseau, Durkheim is not optimistic about the supersession of this pathology. Um, now, this is, again, my reading. Uh, he might say that he thinks that his solution can supersede it. But it seems to me that like Rousseau, the solution that Durkheim posits doesn't actually undo the problem, uh, the existence of, uh, for Rousseau, private property or for Durkheim, uh, like Weber, a kind of society of compulsive capitalist accumulation. Um, market society and, and our domination by the marketplace um, and dependence on the marketplace for our reproduction. Um, 
if Rousseau's solution is popular sovereignty, republican uh, government, Durkheim's solution, in this way we might now recognise as distinctively French, is the cultivation of a particular kind of state, not a state in which I'm empowered by control over it necessarily, but a state that has an active role in cultivating an ethic of a sort of social belonging. This is the very French vision of the republican state, in which, uh, unlike the liberal vision in which the state should be non-interventionist, the state should actively cultivate a sense of what it is to be a citizen as part of a wider public um, with, with a shared mission. You can see how if Rousseau's problem is unfreedom, his solution is a kind of freedom, which is uh, 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 designing the laws that govern me, uh, uh, popular sovereignty, power. Durkheim's problem is less unfreedom and more um, uh, anomic uh, uh, dislocation of the individual from the social whole. And so his solution, like Rousseau using the state, um, is uh, is to use the state not to, not to free us and empower us, but to give us a sense of social belonging. But both of these solutions don't actually undo the existence of capitalist markets, which, which caused the problem in the first place and which Marx thinks mm. can be undone. So that seems to me a striking similarity, even across more than a century of difference, a striking similarity between Rousseau and Durkheim. Uh, interesting difference, though, that tells you something about the sort of history of social theory is that where Rousseau begins his investigation on the origins of inequality by saying, we need theory, we need thought experiments, we need hypothetical histories, conjecture, because we can't ask the question, what is natural for human beings, and then find evidence for it, really, because all the evidence we have comes from, uh, say, especially if it's written evidence, right, comes from uh, history way beyond the state of nature. Hobbes might tell you it's natural for people to compete with each other and write down how they hate each other. But actually, that takes loads of millennia of history to get us to that point. And so we need, mm. So I have to conjecture to you about what a state of nature might be, because I don't have evidence. In the absence of evidence, I need theory. Whereas for Durkheim, I think interestingly for us today, um, the, the necessity of theory is not the absence of evidence, but rather the existence of evidence poses problems which theory must then explain, which is to say, you know, the evidence can tell me suicide rates rise in a particular... The evidence tells me women who are divorced don't then go and tend to kill themselves, but men who are divorced are more likely to kill themselves. What might it be that might explain that? And Durkheim has a particularly strange, I think, answer to that. So evidence, it's not the absence of evidence, but the existence of evidence that that poses problems that require theoretical explanations. I think that's an interesting example of the sort of change in in, in the history of uh, social thinking. Mm. Yeah, and I think we'll come back to this at some point, but it is interesting that you point out that a theme that we're seeing develop um, in in kind of discourses that otherwise people might expect are not only highly critical of capitalism, but are generally, I think, mischaracterized as um, violently revolutionary in the sense of just let's explode capitalism, uh, kind of go back to something that we had. It's very much more of an idea of we have entered, you know, we have this thing, you call it the state capitalist mode of production, whatever. How do we move forward in a way that kind of jujitsus or transmogrifies or kind of corrals the energy and, and, and the fact of its existence into a way that is, you know, democratic and, and founded in flourishing as opposed to um, oppression. So I think it's an interesting thing to point out. And I think that we should talk more about at some point is how these thinkers have thought about ways of using the fact of the emergence of private property or capitalism, whatever it was, as something as a launch pad towards something else in a kind of forward moving momentum of, of history. I think that's an interesting um, feature you pull out. But okay, so Durkheim. Durkheim gives us this kind of conceptual toolkit that you've mentioned. And maybe moving from Durkheim, we can go to uh, Georgi Lukacs, who I might be butchering his name there. It's very... Georgi, know. yeah. Or just, you can yeah. just say George. <laughs> George I'll, go with, I'll go with the thoroughly Americanized George. Um, Lukacs is really interesting, right? He's a Hungarian philosopher. He's, you know, he's alive from, I think, uh, the late 1800s through to almost 1970. 
And he's he's a figure who was very uh, foundational in kind of the the strain of Western Marxism, right, coming out of the Soviet form. So it was a really interesting kind of pivotal point in that thinking and the evolution of that thinking. And Lukács, and I, I know this from personal experience, is he's difficult to read, right? He, and he's often characterized as such. He's pretty dense. He's he feels very abstracted and, and convoluted. Um, so. Let's get into Lukács because despite that that kind of surface, he has some really interesting things to say. And, and despite the fact that I wasn't able to crack him, um, I still came out after having read him with some really interesting perspectives. So so where do you see Lukács fitting into all this? Well, he fits in, I think, quite neatly. And, and, and especially as an answer to that question you just posed um, about how we treat the birth and development of capitalist private property as a launch pad, I think was your word, uh, mm. uh, from which to uh, achieve better things. Um, because that's very much the, the Marxian model that Lukács inhabits. You know, uh, Lukács uh, in the essay, the very famous essay on reification and the consciousness of the proletariat that, that, that I'll say something about, uh, it, it, he writes under the shadow of his um, exhilarated conversion to Marxism, um, which crucially happens amid mm. uh, revolutionary optimism around the years of the Russian Revolution and the idea that, 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 and you see this optimism brimming on the pages of the essay, the idea that, that there really is an agent, the proletariat, which can, which can break capitalism. Um, Marx and Engels had written in some sort of notes they prepare. Uh, actually, it's Engels who wrote this, this notes uh, sort of for the Communist Manifesto. He structures those notes as a Q&A. And he answers the question, would communism be possible at any point in history? And he says, no, it is the development of capitalist private property that makes this thing possible. And that's central to the way that Marx and Engels think. Um, and I think Lukács too. So um, one way uh, to introduce the distinctiveness of Marxist thinking about social pathology is to say, um, is to return to that question that I, I began with and haven't given any kind of satisfactory answer to yet, which is, what norms do we use? What standpoint do we use? What yardstick do we use to label a form of life pathological? Well, you might have noticed implicitly that we've had a few answers to that question already. Rousseau had the past. Uh, if he can say that there's a state of nature which uh, at least is conceivable um, as radically different from from the kind of living that we have, then you could use that past as your as your standpoint from which to critique and assail the present. Mm. Um, Durkheim has the present as his standpoint because he's taking something like suicide, which is an accepted, uh, I think, pathological behavior. Uh, so he's not engaged so much in, in, in arguing with you that you should think of something as pathological that you hadn't previously done. Uh, he's rather engaged in trying to show you that something's more social than you might have realized. Suicide, you might think of it as a problem of the individual. We might today think of it as a problem of the individual's mental health or something. These are very different frames from the kinds of frames Durkheim has. Well, if Rousseau has the past and Durkheim has the present, Lukács has, I think, a kind of future-oriented norm. That is to say, he thinks that capitalism makes possible a radically superior form of society and yet then curtails, actively, violently curtails the realisation of that superior form of society. So capitalism creates massive prosperity, creates the proletariat. The proletariat can seize that prosperity and, and, and regulate it and control it and plan it for ends very different from the ends of capitalist private profit. And yet, of course, cap individual capitalists um, do all they can to prevent the realisation of that possibility, which capitalism has itself created. And so Lukács, I think, uses the future as his basis from which to launch a critique of the present. And that's a very important point to me, because it, I think, 
clarifies that a critique of social pathology need not be indelibly tied to this great vice that Althusser and other philosophers I quite like have highlighted, which is the vice of a humanism, which thinks that there's something called the human being, which is natural, um, and we can kind of judge societies as, uh, as, as failing to reach uh, the standards set by this natural norm of the human, right? If you're Lukács, it seems to me, you can think of um, the kinds of goods that he wants to realise as entirely created by capitalist society. Capitalist society creates the possibility for unalienated flourishing living. Um, it's just that capitalist society then um, curtails the, the, the realisation of, of those uh, goods. So this is just to uh, sort of introduce the distinctiveness of, I think, a non-humanist approach to social pathology, uh, which is a radically historicist, um, though that's a word Althusser didn't like at all, um, approach to, uh, to the problem of, of, of capital and, and the self, um, in which capitalism creates particular kinds of subjectivity, um, the, the, the subject of the proletariat, um, uh, which can then free us all from social pathology. In that sense, then, Lukács is very different from someone like Weber, for whom we're all in an iron cage. There's no one who's free of social pathologies. Lukács, who was Weber's kind of sort of student and, um, and, and, and lots of Weber's great text, Economy and Society, is an implicit uh, argument with Lukács and, 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 and his Marxist students. Um, uh, Lukács is, is very keen on the idea that there, is, uh, there are people who are able to escape from that social pathology, and that's, that's the proletariat. One of the aspects of, of Lukács that I really appreciated was he had one of the most, I think, direct perspectives on capitalist society being a social form that that actively produces uh, consciousness. So, for example, he writes, not until the rise of capitalism was a unified economic structure and hence a formally unified structure of consciousness that embraced, embraced the whole society brought into being. And I, I think a, a helpful and maybe a cheeky metaphor to understand what Lukács thinks the capitalist mode of production is, is doing is a cup of tea, right? If you have a little white cup of steaming water and you drop in a black tea bag at the center, and at first there's this little kind of aura that forms around the bag, the color starts darkening and that, that aura begins to expand and crawl outwards and it infuses more and more of the water with its color. And before you know it, the entire cup of kind of once clear water is now this dark shade of brown emanating out from the tea bag at the center. And for Lukács, it's almost as if the the capitalist mode of production is this tea bag dropped in the middle of society, the nature of which is to spread itself outwards and fuse more and more of its surrounding environment with its own substance or essence, right? To kind of restructure the the molecular structure of the water or of the relationships of, of society and so on. And I think that while that might be a, a fun and admittedly abstract example, what Lukács writes about, and I'd really to love to have you elaborate on this, is concretely, how is it that something like capitalism or the, the mode of production, the commodity form, spreads its own logic, right? What does it mean in less abstracted terms to talk about why it is that organizing a society in such a way where workers sell their time for a wage to capitalists who pursue profit, why does this have such the pr uh, profound effect that Lukács documents that kind of winds up emanating outwards and, and kind of embracing all of society? Mm. I think that's a great analogy. And the, the easy, quick answer to that question is that the distinct, one of the centrally distinctive things about capitalist society, which again, Marx and Engels had highlighted uh, in the Communist Manifesto, uh, uh, is this expansionary norm. So, you know, they, they say in the manifesto, uh, previous ruling classes were conservative. They, they didn't like change. But the distinctive hmm. thing about the bourgeoisie as a ruling class is it needs change. Um, it, it, it doesn't just want stability like a feudal ruling class does. It wants the, pe the feudal ruling class wants the peasants to stay on the land and do as they're told the bourgeoisie needs constant innovation 
um, uh, in order to, um, uh, to, 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 to stay in business by uh, outcompeting its rivals. Now, it's worth noting, actually, that there's a tradition of anti-capitalism, which is quite critical of Marx on this point and thinks that Marx perhaps uh, uh, took to heart too much bourgeois claims about the bourgeoisie in which it's endlessly innovative and progressive um, and mm. productive. Um, so people like Fernand Braudel and Giovanni Arrighi um, have highlighted the, the idea that Actually, most capitalists are quite happy with a steady rate of profit and, and, and you know, are not constantly needing to expand their, their, their business all the time, um, partly because they can uh, succeed in generating monopolistic conditions where they're not always facing um, competition. And Marx wasn't at all unaware of that. Um, but the, the basic idea of that expanding norm means that... Um, Whereas in feudal society, I might, and I'm constantly using here as a kind of foil, a very simplistic image of uh, my brother's a medieval historian who would be furious with me for my images of feudal <laughs> Europe. As this kind of, but it's, I'm just using it as a rhetorical foil uh, to, to, to highlight the specificities of capitalist society. And you know, in that feudal society, in my butchered image of it, boulderized image of it, I might go if I want to listen to a piece, a piece of music. I might go round to my friend's um, uh, dwelling and sit and listen to my friend play the guitar for me or whatever, whatever it is. Um, whereas in a capitalist society, I'll go on the internet now and I'll buy a track online or in the old days I'll go to a record shop and, and, and buy a record. So more and more of life comes to be dominated by the economy. That is to say this experience that previously was outside anything you might call the economy, not that they have the term in medieval uh, Europe, um, uh, like listening to a piece of music, that's just part of my social and cultural life that I do with my friends, that then becomes part of the economy. I'm using money and I'm doing it. And that realm, the economy, expands in a capitalist mm. society because uh, capitalists must expand uh, um, and must dominate more and more in order to continue to accumulate profits and not if they stand still uh, to be driven out of business by their rivals. So that's the kind of uh, first order answer, quite, I, I hope quite simple answer about um, why, why capitalism is an expansionary norm and not just a, a stable one. But you also raise a very important point about this idea um, Lukács says the distinctiveness of Marxism is not that it uh, gives you the explanation from the economic point of view. Marxism is usually today talked about as an economic determinism. Lukács says, no, the distinctiveness of Marxism is that it has the point of view of totality. And here he means to say you can understand a whole social world, a social totality, as this thing that he calls the commodity structure. So as you can fold it out, as you were saying, from the logic of the commodity. And that is very different from his uh, mentor and, and sparring partner, Weber, for whom capitalism is just a form of rationalization. And bureaucracy is another form of rationalization. So Lukács wants to see not these kind of multiple strands and capitalism is just one, but instead a totality organized around um, what Althusser would actually consider a pretty simplistic picture of totality, um, uh, organized around a single essence underpinning all of these complex, messy appearances. And that single essence is the commodity uh, and its measurement by this abstraction value. So the search for rational, ordering principles in the world that you see in someone like Darwin um, uh, trying to trying to organize uh, history according to uh, certain clear sets of rational ordering principles that might reflect for Lukacs I think does reflect um, what it is to live in a consumer society a commodity society in which everything must be measured and quantified and every moment of time must be E.P. Thompson has a famous essay about the factory clock every moment of time must be regulated and monitored um, in order to extract value from it um, uh, this kind of quantification measurement system affects then how we come to think about science um, the individual subject becomes our starting point for thinking about the whole world we talked at the beginning of our conversation about the poverty of that view of the world well Thinking the individual subject as our starting point is for Lukács a very bourgeois way of thinking about the world, because what it is to live in a bourgeois society is not to engage with the world as king or peasant, but as abstract 
uh, owner of my labor power, if I'm a worker, or of capital, if I'm a capitalist, who must then go out and, 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 and war with others in the world for a job or for profits. Um, that subject, the individual subject, is then imagined relating to the external world through a very, very particular logic, which is possession. So I mentioned earlier, Kant describes the marriage as a contract for ownership over the conjugal faculties of another. So Mm -hmm. Lukács gives you this amazing, the reason the essay is so extraordinary, I think, to read is, is he folds out whether it's modern science or literature or philosophy in the form of Immanuel Kant, he folds out so much of the ways that we have of thinking about the world as the consequence of living um, in, in, in a commodity structure. One thing I think it's important to stress is, uh, very briefly, is that um, Lukács talks about objective and subjective sides of this process of mm. reification, which is to turn the world into a series of calculable, measurable commodities. So it tur- the subjective side, it turns human labour power too into, uh, in- into a commodity. That is, of course, for Marx, the central commodity um, of capitalist society. And so it turns us as people and our ways of relating to each other um, into, into the measurable question of commodity relations. Um, but then the most important thing to say, just to uh, contrast uh, Lukács to Rousseau and Durkheim, is to say something about his sense of the solution to the problem of reification. Yeah. I think we, I think that's, I think that's important not to miss. Yeah. Um, uh, in this optimistic revolutionary moment, um, he thinks of this class, the proletariat, as the solution. The very important thing about what the proletariat is for Lukács is that it stands outside a kind of deceptive individualism. So, if I am um, a capitalist, I encounter myself as a free agent um, trying to build my uh, profits, uh, while in fact I am subject to abstract laws beyond my control, the laws of the marketplace, um, uh, which which dominate me. It's kind of impersonal domination dominating me just as they dominate workers, perhaps less violently and brutally. Um, But if I don't uh, make enough profits, I will just go out of business. But my my language of myself, and I think people recognise this, the capitalist language of themselves is as the individualist striver, go-getter, a language that that obscures the reality that that process of striving and and grafting and working hard and building a business is, of course, a process of trying to succeed within a set of abstract laws outside my personal control. Um, that's the capitalist. Equally, the specialist. Um, Lukács has particular hatred for journalists in a way that might resonate with many today. Uh, the specialist views, the journalist views his or her labour as their personal property. I'm going to write this amazing story and it's going to go out in the world in a newspaper tomorrow and people are going to like me. Um, the distinctiveness of the modern industrial proletariat for Lukács is that this is a subject facing directly the social character of labour. When I go down a mine shaft, or for that matter, enter into a call centre, I can't think like a capitalist that I'm some striving go-getter, um, or like a journalist that my labour is my personal beauty. I mean, I could actually. Uh, perhaps Lukács in this optimistic moment <laughs> uh, is too doubtful of that possibility. But it's at least possible, mm. let's say, for me to encounter labour as something which is necessarily social. I go down the mine shaft with all the other miners, I walk into the call centre with everyone else. And so the negation of this uh, miserable labour process that I do as a miner or a call centre worker isn't my personal, here's Rousseau again, my personal independence from the world, but is rather to place that social labour process under social control. So I'm outside the deceptive individualism that thinks I'm a free individual, I must just free myself, you know, Lenin thinks smallholding peasants live like this as well, I must just have my own plot of land um, and not have a landlord interfere with it. No, if I don't have any property, if I've been deprived of any property except my own labour power, then I can see that when I go to work in a factory, the solution is not for me to have my own factory. Again, 
if I believe in the American dream, I might think that. But if I'm a if I'm a worker on Lukacs's optimistic model, it's at least possible for me to say, well, the solution is for all of us who work in this factory to own it and run it together. And so the proletariat can become Lukacs's famous enigmatic phrase, the identical subject object of history. Right? Both both the kind of su- substance driving the process of capitalist society, and also the subject controlling in a future socialist society the direction of that society. And that's the distinctiveness of the proletariat as a class whose labour is irreducibly social and who therefore sees the process of transformation as ending a kind of contradiction that makes capitalist totality an incomplete totality because it relies on on, on social labour and yet it treats ownership over that labour as individual. Ending that contradiction, making it more fully a totality for Lukács, I think, um, by by making a social process of labour into a socially controlled process so that those who are the underpinnings, the bedrock of capitalist society, are also the subject and the drivers of a future society. Mm. Yeah. And uh, you know what? It's interesting, too, with Lukács. He has this kind of balance. Maybe you can help clear up with, on one hand, I, uh, we were talking about the kind of inherent nature of the logic of, of capitalism, that, that the expansionary you know, quality. On the other hand, Lukács is pretty explicit, it seems to me, to point out that it, it is possible to have these forms, or at least there have been societies in which these forms have existed and not expanded out in the center um, or from the center. So, for example, uh, Lukács wrote... Commodity fetishism is a specific problem of our age, the age of modern capitalism. Commodity exchange and the corresponding subjective and objective commodity relations existed, as we know, when society was still very primitive. What is at issue here, however, is the question, how far is commodity exchange, together with its structural consequences, able to influence the total outer and inner life of society? The distinction between a society where this form is dominant permeating every expression of life and a society where it only makes an episodic appearance is essentially one of quality, so on and so forth. And so mm. taking that here where he says, you know, there, there not only have there been historical instances where you have this form existing and not engulfing society mm. and putting that against our previous conversation about the kind of inherent expansionary logic uh, of the commodity form, how, is he saying that the, wherever you have capitalism, it will expand out? Or is he saying that it is possible to have a non-hegemonic form of, of that kind of mode of production exist in harmony with others? It's an excellent question. Uh, Marx is at pains to say similar things in Capital, um, where he stresses that uh, he doesn't think that uh, exchange, for example, is is unique to capitalist society. He doesn't think that markets are unique to capitalist society. Capitalist right. society is something much more particular than that. Um, I already hinted at the terms of Robert Brenner, the American Marxist, um, who, who talks in terms of market dependence rather than the existence of markets as being the central distinctive feature of capitalist society. And that might help us a little to understand what Lukács is getting at when he says, mm. uh, as you just as you just quoted, that the difference between capitalist society and other kinds of market present societies, where there is a market, is not just a difference of quantity, but a difference, his word, of quality. It's really mm-hmm. a fundamental difference. Um, and Lukács gives you a way of passing that fundamental difference by saying, my subjectivity, um, my abilities to think um, are all framed through the logic of the commodity structure only in a capitalist society. They're not all framed by the logic of, of the commodity in a feudal society, even though I might go to market once a week to buy some, you know, and I might use money to buy some goods that I can't otherwise uh, farm for myself. So the key novelty, Brenner would tell you, is that in a capitalist society, I don't just use markets sometimes, I'm dependent on markets for every aspect of my reproduction. And that, the condition of possibility for that 
situation is not owning the means of my own subsistence. So the Which radicalism, goes back to Rousseau, right? Well, absolutely, that's right. But the radicalism of the proletariat for Marx and for Lukacs is that it's what Marx calls doubly free, right? It's and this is a kind of brutal, uh, nasty kind of turn of phrase. You know, it, it, the proletarian is free to sell their labour power to whoever they like. I, as I can go around town hawking my labour to capitalists. Um, I'm not tied down repressively as in a feudal society by only being able to farm for my lord. Right again, very mm-hmm. butchered, uh, uh, crude image of feudal society. Um, uh, so. I am therefore suddenly, think about the conceptual transformation that goes on there, right? I'm not just a serf and I have a peasant to whom I owe obligations, maybe because God tells me I do. I am instead an individual who owns my labour power. My labour power becomes not just a part of me, but a commodity that I own, right? That is a huge conceptual transformation. And so I can think about my work, not just as various different processes of hunting and fishing and whatever. I can think instead that they all belong under a single abstraction called labour. This is the key innovation of capitalism for Marx, I think, and for Lukács. Um, that there is this abstraction called labour, which is a thing that I own. It is my commodity, and I must buy and sell it to anyone. I'm free to do that. So imagine all of the work that's packed into that conceptual transformation. I move from being a serf with obligations to my lord to being a possessive individual who owns mm. commodities like labor and I and I sell them. That's the first sense of double freedom. And the second miserable sense of double freedom is I'm free from um, uh, any kinds of land or other means to, to reproduce my own existence. So I have to sell my labor power to live because I don't have a plot of land like a feudal peasant that I can use to, to, to farm carrots and eat them, to grow carrots and eat them. Um, yeah. And so it's that double freedom which makes the proletariat a creation of capitalist society um, and, um, and for Lukács, uh, the, the, the possibility of transcending capitalist society too. And that's very, very different from a feudal European society, say, um, uh, in which there are markets and they sort of exist at the margins of society. Or maybe even some Marxists recently, like Jairus Banerjee, have argued that they're very central. Um, but, but you don't have the kind of double freedom as a ubiquitous condition. Um, and so the kind of market dependence um, that you see in uh, in our classic models of capitalist society. Mm, yeah, that's a wonderful framing. Um, so from Lukács, we can move to a period and a body of thought that really began taking shape in the 1920s. And this is the group known as the Frankfurt School. Uh, the Frankfurt School emerges as a, a network of social theorists and philosophers. And we're going to start by focusing on two who were central to the whole project. And that is Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer. Uh, you know, these two authored what remains one of the central books to come out of this whole school of thinking, which was the dialectic of enlightenment. Uh, so what do Adorno and Horkheimer bring to this discussion? Oh, so um, the first thing to say is that that book, A Dialectic of Enlightenment, is a series of fragments uh, circulated among friends um, as panicked. Uh, I don't mean that um, sort of critic, but sort of negatively, um, but clearly panicked um, responses to two phenomena which take us into a different moment from Lukács' 1920s, uh, early 1920s moment. Um, sort of 1917 to 1923 is, is often taken as the kind of moment of revolutionary possibility around the Russian Revolution and the series of revolutions that happened um, around the world, many of them abortive, um, uh, that gave Lukács his optimism, I think. Um, and Adorno and Horkheimer are writing the dialectic of enlightenment, having themselves been participant in that optimism. I mean, uh, Horkheimer has this amazing essay on traditional and critical theory, in which he suggests that the very possibility of a critical theory is dependent on this kind of future-oriented norm, which is taking the proletariat as the possibility for transcending capitalist society. And you can do a critique of capitalist society only because you have that norm, right? So this is to refuse contemporary analytic philosophies, separation between your 
your normative claims and your descriptive claims about the world. No, you make particular descriptive claims because of uh, the norms that you have and, and, and your ability to, 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 to issue those norms is dependent on descriptive claims about the kind of society and, it, and the direction it's headed in. Um, okay, so what do you then do if that moment of revolutionary optimism not only subsides, but is brutally defeated, and then you get fascism? Uh, so we've moved from revolutionary optimism to a kind of deep pessimism. And, and the question becomes, what on earth does that mean for this critique of social pathology if you premised it um, on on a moment of of optimism? Now, there's, and that I think is 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 the um, uh, well, I should say there are twin uh, crises uh, that Adorno and Horkheimer uh, uh, famously interested in, which is fascism and also the rise of a kind of consumer society, uh, mm-hmm. which might seem to validate Weber's view about the universal hold of the iron cage um, and not Lukács' more optimistic view that there is a class which is at least structurally able, not to say it always does, but structurally able to be to stand outside um you know, to be what Foucault would call outside of power. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the idea that we associate with Foucault that there is no outside of power um, is clearly there in Weber, but I think really takes off um, in these more pessimistic um, uh, moments. Um, and I think you can see some of that in Adorno and Horkheimer. So what we get in uh, one of the, uh, if we take the essay on the culture industry and, and sort of focus on that, um, what we get is, um, I think an interesting recoding of the way that Marx had talked about individuality. So for Marx, individuality is one of these great examples of a kind of imminent possibility. That's imminent with an A, not an I. So that is possibilities <laughs> of, of, of transforming the world, which are created by the world itself. So capitalism makes us into individuals. Um, I've spoken a bit about that, you know, in, in, in Luca, how we become possessive individuals. Um, but the full realization of individuality is actually the work of communism. You know, I'm not a kind of rounded, free individual who can choose my own projects for myself. If I'm disciplined by a division of labor that says I have to sit in Adam Smith's pin factory and do the same boring work all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. So capitalism makes me into an individual, but it can't realize individuality. And so I actually think that the realization of individuality is central to the normative frame through which Marx understands communism. Now, there's a positive kind of dialectic in which capitalism creates individuality and then the negation of capitalism makes possible a real individuality. Well, Adorno and Horkheimer have famously a negative dialectics. Um, uh, uh, framed by this experience of defeat, um, a dialectical process where it doesn't assume the uh, happy resolution at the end of the story. Um, and so they give us in the culture industry a story in which capitalism not only creates individuality, but then by the pervasiveness of uh, an ethic of endless accumulation that invades every aspect of our life and turns it into commodities, and by the growth of, of, of uh, increasingly monopolistic um, uh, forms of life that uh, through monopolistic capitalists give us the same products all the time. Not only does capital create individuality and makes me an individual abstract citizen, it also destroys my individuality and makes Mm. everyone the consumer of exactly the same kind of music, exactly the same kind of TV, exactly the same radio programs, um, uh, because uh, because successful businesses have uh, have outcompeted their rivals and sort of monopolized the market. So individualism ends up producing its opposite. Um, funnily enough, in the 1830s, this was Tocqueville's aristocratic anxiety about individualism. Um, he thought individualism was going to produce actually homogeneity. Um, and Adorno and Horkheimer have, a, have, a, have, a, have some resonance of the Tocquevillian aristocratic anxiety, I think, um, in them. And so you see here the capitalist roots. This is why the argument has such a political punch, right? You see the capitalist roots of something like fascist totalitarianism. Rather than thinking there's this thing called liberal democracy, and it's clearly the opposite of a fascist state where rather than having variety, you have you know homogeneity dictated by a leader. Instead, you see how the marketplace has produced the kinds of homogeneity 
that, that can then make you move relatively seamlessly a Donald Horkheimer fear from everyone sitting down in their living rooms together to listen to the same uh, um, uh, piece of music on the radio to everyone sitting down in their living rooms to listen to the same speech from a Nuremberg rally. Um, that, you know, we, you, might, you might think that a, a grand uh, shift. And as I say, uh, their writing framed, I think, by a deep sense of despair and anxiety. Um, but they're highlighting uh, the degree to which individuality uh, is, is destroyed by the coming of a, of a capitalist homogeneity. Yeah, that, that's a it's a really fascinating uh, way to point out the the negative dialectic whereby capitalism does this thing in which it creates the individual, which is not inherently oppressive. It it opens up these new potentialities for historical development of new forms of freedom. Right, it creates the individual. Wonderful. Exactly. Exactly. And then it and then it just as you say destroys the individual, constrains it, it contains it, it it kind of holds back its own creation. And maybe one way to think about that is when you see. Uh, a new historical form that has created something and then begins to hinder its own creation. That's almost an indicator that that form, maybe in these schools of thought anyway, that that form has run its course. That once it begins constraining its own production, you need to look at what comes next and get there. Um, otherwise, you you maintain, you stay in this kind of limbo, this kind of holding pattern of degradation that's, especially for the Frankfurt School, which can be, as you said, very pessimistic. You can you can envision a world in which you are unable to break out of that form and you maintain kind of like as the degrading individual just onwards and onwards and onwards. But I, I like framing their work as kind of the, the presence and the amplification of the negative dialectic as an indication that uh, it is time to seriously think about what comes next and how to get there. Well, I, I, I uh, actually would push back a little against that because I Good. think the problem is that um, uh, in, in the culture industry essay, especially if you contrast it to Horkheimer's earlier essay on traditional and critical theory, the problem is that uh, they're highlighting a process that makes it much more difficult to think the supersession of mm. this social form because the conditions of possibility for superseding it, which were uh, an agent, a collective act at the proletariat, which was uh, excluded from some of its uh, work of sort of subjectivation, some of its social pathology. Um, part of Adorno and Horkheimer's focus on mass culture, where Lukács had focused on the ostensibly higher realms of literature and philosophy, is to hone in on a zone that clearly affects the lives of, of, of people that might earlier have been identified as proletarians. Um, mm. So uh, where there's a certain kind of stagist reading of Marx, that says social formations have a function in developing the productive forces. And then when they, when they become fetters on the further development of the productive forces, that's the time to free ourselves from them. Adorno and Horkheimer are saying, well, that's all very well. Uh, but it only works if you can identify some kind of standpoint, traditionally within sort of traditional Marxism, it was the standpoint of labour, um, of, of the worker, um, that could function as emancipatory, that could then work mm. to free you. Um, and if you don't have that standpoint, it isn't just like, we know that capitalism is bad, but, um, but we don't know what to do about it. It's in a sense more fundamental our very ability to say it was bad relied on a yardstick, which was this kind of future-oriented norm. And if we've lost that future-oriented norm, we really are, I think, a little at sea. Um, and that's not, I don't say that critically of them. I say that because I think they're pointing out a very genuine problem. So I, I'm afraid I have a less uh, happy reading of the essay <laughs> than you're uh, suggesting. And it's no, it's interesting, and it's definitely. I think you're correct um, to to point out that one, especially from the Frankfurt School perspective, one of the features of, for example, their study of the culture industry is how it erodes our capacity to imagine anything otherwise. Right, kind of a, an early framing mm. of Mark Fisher's capitalist realism. That's right. And I, I really enjoyed actually recently. I had an economist on the on the podcast, uh, Catherine Gibson. And she was part of the collective J.K. Gibson Graham that has written some really wonderful work on on all of this kind of stuff. Absolutely, and they have, yeah. 
And one of her central elements that that she was kind of writing through was this idea of, of economies of difference. And it's almost a direct refutation, I think, to that kind of pessimism that existed in the Frankfurt School. What she's trying to say is we have been conditioned, maybe by the forces the Frankfurt School saw, to think that we live in a capitalist society that has no outside, that everything we do is capitalism, that, as you say, there's no more kind of emancipatory standpoint that we can go to that is outside in order to envision something different. And she has this whole thing about trying to illuminate the areas in which those differences already exist and have been masked underneath what we have been kind of conditioned to see as capitalism. So I, I think that the point to bring that in is that you know, th there is contention and I think a very interesting and important debate of see seeing or relearning how to see the situations we're in and figuring out, you know, is there an outside? What does that mean? Um, and, and what does the role of the outside kind of, how does that function in the process of, of moving forward? Yes, I'm, I'm reminded of the late uh, David Graeber, who mm. in his uh, big book on debt, sometimes referred to as debt, the first 5,000 pages, because <laughs> it's, it's very long, has this, and Graeber was sort of endlessly optimistic, at least at the level of possibility, if not likelihood, uh, has this discussion of what I think he calls everyday communism, where he highlights that mm. the, the degree of the, the prevalence of social relations in our world, which are not marketized. Uh, Jerry Cohen had his famous example of the camping trip. You know, everyone wants to go on a communist camping trip uh, where we all decide our tasks in common and do them and not a capitalist camping trip where we say I'll pay you if you erect the tent and you better pay <laughs> me if I if I make some dinner um, and indeed those kinds of communist camping trips are I, I think more more common than capitalist camping trips at least outside students and economics departments um, so uh, absolutely there's a lot of criticism Nancy Fraser has also written about Lukács um, in, in the terms that uh, uh, suggest that uh, it's not quite right that we live under nothing but a market ethic though pessimistically Fraser has added that it might be that actually the, the persistence of markets, the reproduction of markets requires various forms of life that are not marketized, like the unpaid domestic labor of largely women. Mm. Um, uh, right. So it might even be that those things which stand outside a commodity norm, outside a norm of, of, of value and exchange and markets um, remain uh, preconditions uh, or at least aids to the reproduction um, of, mm -hmm. of markets. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, another thing I wanted to pull out from Adorno and Horkheimer that I think is really interesting in a different chapter, uh, the culture industry, I cannot recommend enough. And actually, I'll put a link on the on the episode page for anyone. Stephen West did a, a philosophize this episode on the culture industry that is just phenomenal. But in another chapter, they're writing about this idea that I think has some resonance with what we were discussing about Lukács and specifically about whether, you know, the relationship between the expansionary nature and the, the existence of alternatives. Adorno and Horkheimer were writing about reason and rationality. And, and specifically, they were kind of challenging this otherwise uh, relatively, I think, uncritically accepted idea that, you know, the history of civilization had been this long march from illusion and mythology into the, the light of reason. And, and for them, reason and rationality, I think, are, are not inherently problematic, right? The problem on their account was that we have elevated rationality up to this pedestal and a particular kind, the instrumental rationality, up onto this pedestal where it becomes the sole force, the only organizing principle, the kind of only way of relating to the world that is acceptable. And by allowing reason to become that hegemonic dominant force in our lives, we have subjected or we ongoingly subject every area of our lives to it. And that spawns these kinds of consequences. So for them too, similar to, to Lukács, you have the vision that the problem may not be inherent in the existence of the, of the form, whether it's um, you know exchanges and market or, or reason and rationality, but rather letting that thing become too powerful and, and, and too central, which to me almost makes a case for 
broadly, diversity, right? The diversity of economic modes of production, the diversity of ontologies and epistemologies, ways of, of relating to the world. And, you know, these are nice things to say, but but difficult to implement, I think, as, as directives of, for example, a global economic system, right? How do you design a, a world economy to foster diversity, not only of goods and services, but of ontologies, of the mind, of, of ways of living and being in the world and, and relating to each other? But this idea of diversity, of not letting a single thing become the universal criteria for acceptability, sounds to me like it lives both in, in Lukács and, and the Frankfurt School. Is that, a, is that a fair thing to say? Oh, again, I don't think so. Um, and <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think that certainly the optimistic Lukács and then the more optimistic thinkers of the Frankfurt School, like Marcuse, um, would think diversity as a kind of intriguing aspiration of a moment of defeat, you know. Um, mm. And I think, this, I think it's no coincidence that it arises in our epoch, you know. We'll have a bit of capitalism, but we can have a bit of other things too. Well, no, their ambition <laughs> is a total social transformation in which we no longer have um, the social form capitalist society. Um, mm. But I think you raise a very interesting and important point, uh, which laces through particularly the earlier chapters of the Dialectic of Enlightenment, um, chapters two and three, say that the, the discussions of, um, of, of reason. Um, and here it helps to put Adorno and Horkheimer, like Lukács, in conversation with Weber. Um, mm. uh, where I said earlier, uh, just all too briefly, that Weber is uh, remembered and perhaps uh, misleadingly remembered as the chronicler of rationalization, but he's sensitive to the possibility that there are different kinds of rationalization, that it's wrong to think in terms of a binary of the rational and the irrational, and you should ask instead what, uh, what, what forms of rationality there are. And you mentioned instrumental rationality, which is the kind of um, rationality that only asks how I can further hone my means to deliver a given end. Um, mm. More brutally, Hannah Arendt saw this kind of rationalization in, in Eichmann's thinking, uh, where he stands mm. at the trial and says, you know, I was just needing to work out how I could most efficiently get as many people as possible on these transports, and never poses right. the question, were these transports, what, what were they doing? And of course, they were, they were gassing uh, millions of Jews. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, instrumental rationality is, is a rationality of, of, of means uh, that doesn't pose the question of ends. Um, and it's important to say that because that distinguishes Adorno and Horkheimer from a perhaps more fuzzy, perhaps more friendly uh, sense of a kind of 60s new left, um, uh, or perhaps it's wrong to say new left, but a certain kind of 60s countercultural grappling with the problem of rationality, which would privilege the emotions uh, over the rational. Um, and mm. it's important to say that, uh, that Adorno and Horkheimer in their critique of rationality are not, it seems to me, calling for a turn away from the rational to this world that the rational defines as its opposite, uh, like the emotional, the caring um, against the sort of hard edge of, of reason. Often this has this distinction takes on a gendered form, um, uh, you know, that, that reason is some particularly male phenomenon and, 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 and the softer caring is some particularly feminine thing. Um, Adorno and Horkheimer, I think, are instead uh, asking you to question that framing um, uh, and asking you to question as ideological and as a sort of cop-out and a cheat, the move by which uh, instrumental rationality defines its own opposite as a kind of unthinking moment um, of, of merely instinctive, intuitive emotion or feeling. Mm. Um, and they're instead asking me to think about the different kinds of rationality that exist in the world and to think of, of, of capitalism as a very, very particular kind of instrumental rationality uh, guided towards maximization, um, a rationality that, 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 that uh, treats the world as quantifiable and uh, universally exchangeable um, commodities, and, um, and which then uh, asks the rational, the instrumentally rational question, how can I maximize the production and exchange of commodities? That they don't want to say that's the only uh, possible form of rationality, even though in this text, uh, they're not optimistic that they have easy answers about alternative possible forms of rationality. Right. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. And, you know, I, I think there's a, there's an English writer, Stuart Walton, and I think he, 
he's very helpful in kind of understanding or framing the, the pessimism maybe that we've been looking at of the Frankfurt School. Um, so he he wrote this this passage. Marx inherits from his predecessor Hegel the concept of history as a generative process through which humankind both produces its own consciousness and progresses toward its own li- its own liberation. But he stands the cause and effect structure of Hegel on his head, as we talked about. It isn't that human beings generate the social structures most appropriate to them in any given age. It is rather that social structures themselves are what generate human consciousness via the material conditions in which people have to live. And the idea I want to pull out of that, that I think we were just touching on, is this idea that history is naturally moving, and you've mentioned this with Hegel, naturally moving or pushing or generating human progress towards that liberation of consciousness or towards producing forms of consciousness that are progressively more emancipatory. And what it feels like to me, like the, the Frankfurt School is doing, is breaking from that idea that there is a natural movement that will go Um, in the direction of emancipation, right? They say it's just as likely, if not already evident, that we will move um, deeper into regression and barbarism and unfreedom. And so this idea that there's nothing natural about the movement towards emancipation, and therefore, you know, struggle is going to be one of these kind of key elements in, in deciding that, which in one sense, I think opens the door to see why they are pessimistic. But in another sense, it might move us in the direction. And I'd like to ask you about this, of, and they, I think they were notoriously light on on their solutions, right? They they say that it is not natural we are going to move towards freedom. They're they're skeptical maybe about our capacity to do so. But do they gesture towards any kind of solution or or way to respond to all of this? I don't think so. In the dialectic of enlightenment, though, other readers have have disagreed with that. I should say I disagree thoroughly with the characterization of of the Hegel Marx relation um, <laughs> that, that you just read, but I say that because I think it's very useful for our purposes here because I think it clarifies that yeah. Marx had already stepped away from Hegel in a way which Adorno and Horkheimer are going to build on in highly particular uh, directions that are not the same as Marx's, mm. uh, not identical to Marx's. They're writing in highly different moments. Um, that is to say, where it might be the case that Hegel really sees history as uh, a, a universal process of an unfolding law, um, Marx is explicit in letters he writes late on uh, in life uh, uh, to, to a Russian reader of, of, of Capital, Volume 1 of Capital. Uh, mm-hmm. And this Russian reader had said, you know, you've given us capitalism as a sort of necessary stage in the development of human society. Does that mean that we in Russia who don't have capitalism uh, really in the developed sense, you see it in England, have to get capitalism in order to then get socialism? This is a classic mm-hmm. kind of stadial, stagist view of history often associated with Marxism. And Marx replies to this, to this, to this reader, absolutely not. He says, I haven't offered you a marche générale, a, a general law for a, for, for a philosophy of history. A philosophy of history is, of course, what mm. Hegel explicitly was doing. Um, he's offered instead a much more focused sense of the possibilities raised by a highly historically particular and socially particular phenomenon, capitalist society. And I don't, and this is a controversial reading, but I don't have a reading of Marx um, uh, as uh, as unfolding a set of modes of production that point necessarily towards capitalism and then communism. This is a reading heavily indebted to a particular view of his early text, the German ideology, which actually was sort of put together from from fragments um, mm. um, uh, 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 by by Soviet censors and editors. Uh, I don't think that's that's the view of capital, and I think that the uh, that the text capital, and I think that the the, the extraordinary thing about Marx's cr- approach to critique is that he thinks that capitalism has created sets of possibilities, and and, and he's interested. In, in focusing on the particular nature of capitalism and the possibilities it creates, rather than something more general like history being what creates possibilities. Now, mm. how does that bring us back to Adorno and Horkheimer? Well, I mentioned earlier that these, this uh, extraordinary um, uh, achievement of capitalist society in volume one of Capital 
is the creation of this abstraction around which the whole volume turns, which is this abstraction labor. So rather than seeing all the different forms of work I do as just thoroughly different activities, I instead understand them all as a single thing called labor because they all have to be exchanged on the marketplace and there has to be a price for all of them, which is my wage or my salary, right? And so capitalism mandates the construction of this thing labor so that no longer am I just exercising parts of myself by working. I'm instead owning a commodity labor power that I then sell, alienated from me, um, as something that I can sell to a capitalist. And so this thing, labor, has become a separated abstraction from me. That's a, that's a very, very novel development for Marx. Now, I think that Adorno and Horkheimer treat culture in a similar way, right? The huge power of capitalist society is that it's turned those things that we do after we leave the factory gates at night and before we get back there again in the morning, right? The rest of our lives filled with this thing called culture, right? The music we listen to, the food we eat, the clothes we wear, right? These things which are not just our labour process that Marx has tackled. It's turned those things from being a set of discrete, diverse processes into a single abstraction called culture so that there can be a culture industry where some big conglomerate produces our clothes and our music and uh, and our food um, or at least affects our tastes in all these things and makes them quite homogenous um, and so I think they treat culture very much along the model that Marx treats um, labor you know Marx calls labor peculiarly social under capitalism it is a newly social process because capitalism creates these huge workforces by the time you get to the middle of volume one cooperation in chapter 13 machinery in chapter 15 uh, sort of denuding those workforces actually uh, crucially to his argument but capitalism uh, creates social labor as its basis no longer just the pre-capitalist labor of the artisan and the handicraftsman um but it's social labor as we saw with lukacs that is peculiar because it's not under social control um, similarly adorno and horkheimer call culture a paradoxical community i think is their phrase you know it is this thing which is at once a common homogenizing ubiquitous thing and also precisely individuates us i am merely the consumer of this thing which is actually the same as what everyone else is consuming but i'm an individual consumer who goes and uses my credit card online to buy the this uh, Taylor Swift track, if you're as sad as I am. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, so it's both homogenizing and isolating us simultaneously. And I think they're treating culture as this new abstraction, very much along the model of how Marx treats labor as this new abstraction. And all of this is to make capitalism a highly particular thing, which is not simply another form of domination slotted into a list uh, in which feudal society belongs as its immediate predecessor and slavery belongs as the predecessor before that. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so from Adorno and Horkheimer, we'll remain within the Frankfurt School atmosphere, but we can move on to Herbert Marcuse. Uh, Marcuse becomes one of the most, I think, visible members of the Frankfurt School. He writes some really wonderful books, uh, Eros and Civilization, published in 1955, and One Dimensional Man in 1964. So where does Marcuse go from Adorno and Horkheimer? What does he bring to this? Well, if I said that the Frankfurt School are dissident Weberians, which I think they are, um, you know, they, they, they're they interested in, in, in Weber's concern with rationalization and um, uh, uh, Lukács wants to say, but it doesn't cover everyone like Weber thought it did. And Adorno and Horkheimer and Lukács all want to treat it as caused by a single essence, uh, the value form or commodity structure where Weber uh, doesn't have that kind of dialectical view of a, of a single essence underpinning um, uh, which is capitalism underpinning everything. Um, it's also important to say that the Frankfurt School are, are kind of dissident Freudians. And you mentioned Eros and Civilization. It's a good thing to mention because here you see a very explicit uh, engagement with Freud, uh, and especially with one text of Freud's uh, Civilization and its discontent. So um, the, the, the radicalism of, of Freud 
uh, extraordinary transformative effect on the question of social pathology is by opening up a new object of analysis, the unconscious. So that the problem becomes not only how do I explain the origins of feelings which are clear to me. So think about amour propre. You know, I know that I experience this jealousy or this need to perform certain uh, forms of uh, living, this, uh, as I refer to it in the class, as you mentioned, split subjectivity, where I have a sense of myself internally and then a sense of the external self that I project to others. And Rousseau's asking, okay, where does it come from? And he's giving you this amazing diagnosis. Actually, it turns out it comes from private property. You didn't realize that until you read this book. Uh, the unconscious does something, I think, substantively different. Rather than merely trying to explain the origins of feelings familiar to us, it instead tries to explain uh, uh, feelings, experiences, um, impulses, uh, which are so thoroughly redirected in our conscious experience of them that we're not even quite aware that we have them. And they leave their traces, most famously, in dreams, um, for example. It's very important to Freud that there's no such thing as forgetting, um, uh, that, that there, are, there are traces everywhere, whether in the symptom, which is which is one form of the trace of the unconscious, um, uh, various kinds of neuroses, or Freud uses the term pathologies, um, uh, or, 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 in, or in our inhibitions, um, which, which are other kinds of uh, uh, traces of these, um, of these unconscious uh, phenomena. So to take an example, uh, from Civilization and Its Discontents, uh, the, the text that Marcuse was engaging with. Um, when I experience guilt, um, if you're anything like me, you experience this constantly. Uh, uh, I might think of the problem of guilt as uh, I have to identify what I have done. This would be a pre-Freudian way of thinking about it, right? What I have done uh, that is bad in the world that is making me feel guilty. Um, and of course, that might very often be a very important question to ask. Um, but <laughs> Freud thinks that guilt is also something else that is clear when we bring the unconscious into our um, sort of map of the world. Because Freud thinks that unconsciously, guilt is my mechanism for living with the aggressive impulses that I have. And yet living in a society in which I can't constantly act out my aggressive impulses. So the kind of repressive function of society that tells me, you know, you can't just go and punch someone because you have an aggressive impulse means that I use this regulating part of my subjectivity, which Freud calls the superego. I use that to redirect my aggression against myself. I beat myself up. I feel guilty. So the question uh, what is guilt? Why do you feel it is transformed by the intervention of the idea that there might be unconscious um, uh, mechanisms at play. And Marcuse is especially interested in Freud's construction of a what Freud calls reality and Marcuse calls reality principle, which is our way of accommodating our desire for, yes, destruction, but also our pleasure principle, right? Our desire to achieve uh, unmitigated um, uh, fulfillment of our immediate uh, desires in the world, our, the desires that belong in our id, especially our desires for sexual pleasure and, 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 and hunger and greed. Um, um, uh, the reality principle uh, uh, mediates those desires in order to allow us to live um, in a society. It is the separation of the ego, uh, me, from the external world, perceiving the external world as separate from me. The amazing thing about Freud's civilization is discontents is we begin with this oceanic feeling, this world in which I'm unable to, as a baby to separate myself from the external world. And as and the first stage in the construction of the ego is the separation of myself from the external world, seeing myself as possible 
deposited in kind of dialogue with the external world so that I must then regulate my pleasure principle because I know that there's this world that I'm acting on and it also makes demands of me. And this is to raise the problem of the social world in, I think, a thoroughly distinctive way. Uh, and some contrast can help here, right? If you are a modern economist, you might model the pleasure principle uh, or what you might call in a kind of telling slip that, that changes it from being just the pleasure principle. We might call it something like enlightened self-interest, right? As, as the ruling principle of life. What it means to engage in markets is that I, the markets allow me to have my pleasure principle. I can buy whatever I want right? If you are, before the birth of modern economics, a Hobbesian, then you think, oh God, there are all these people who have this pleasure principle and these violent drives as well that would allow them to sort of clash with each other. So they need to be actively repressed and regulated by something external to them, a state. Freud gives us something which is very different from that view of the economist or the Hobbesian, which is an internal set of mechanisms that convert that pleasure principle into uh, a reality principle, a way of, a way of living in the world. Um, and Marcuse then comes along and says, um, uh, Freud's given us this really interesting set of tools. And actually, he's mostly right. This is a bit like the move Marx makes about the early classical political economists, right? Freud's mostly right about the society he describes, that it's working in this way. But he's wrong to miss the historical dynamic pointing to the specificity and the transcendence of that society. He's wrong to think that the reality principle must mean, for example, that I have to, I tell myself that I have to go to work, even though I don't want to. Uh, Freud's wrong to make that as he explicitly does in civilization its discontents, a trans-historical reality principle that must always regulate my pleasure principle that wants to play and not work. Because it might be that there are historically particular conditions in which by the development of technology and automation, we could supersede that uh, need for work. So uh, for work that looks markedly different from play. Um, mm. And so uh, Marcuse is taking Freud's model in which we must regulate our pleasure principle with a reality principle and not disagreeing with that, not saying, as some readers of this as a kind of crazy utopian text of thought, that we can simply live with a pleasure principle, but saying there might be historically changing reality principles. And so to bring us back to this question of social pathology, it might be that we can once again, as Lukács was doing, use the future as the standpoint from which to critique the present. We could say that things like Weber's cult of work um, are uh, forms of reality principle that have developed and are making us miserable and which are now historically obsolescent, um, which we can move beyond. Mm. Yeah. One of the, I think it's, it's really interesting to frame, uh, not only Marcuse and dialogue, uh, with Freud, but, but kind of as you did to, to look at, for example, uh, if you have Rousseau and Marx who might make the claim that, you know, there is, there's a form of, of repression, uh, going on and for them, they might look to private property or to the capitalist mode of production. And Freud comes along and he says, no, no. And he explicitly talks about private property in uh, civilization yeah. and its discontents. He says, no, no, it's, it's not capitalism. Like sure, maybe something is going on there, but on the whole, it's, it's civilization, right? There is yeah. this kind of inherent tension between, uh, your, your individual desires and the norms and patterns of conduct, which, which you, uh, the reality principle, you know, that are imposed upon you by living within this civilization. And Marcuse kind of breaks, he disagrees, right? As you say, he says, no, he goes back and he says, uh, th there's, uh, you can trace these to the form of society we are currently living in. And he, he uses this phrase that I really enjoy, like the, the non-repressive society. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he posits its possibility. And he says it, it might be possible, just not under capitalism. So, mm -hmm. And and you mentioned also it's a really interesting relationship between work and play. And there's a lot of, I think, talk about, you know, work turning into play in this kind of non-repressive form. But to what degree can we sketch out in a little more detail when Marcuse talks about a non-repressive society? And and I also think it's it's important to keep in mind that the Frankfurt School on the whole are 
notoriously vague about and going into any detail of what this kind of these emancipatory forms look like. So it's it's difficult to to pin them down. But what does he have in mind in, in terms of a non-repressive society? What is that? What are the what are the kind of contours of that that we can start looking at? You know, I I, I don't actually totally share the, the the criticism of vagueness because I think that. Um, you know, when uh, bourgeois revolutionaries made the French Revolution in 1789, they didn't have a picture of Facebook. Uh, as <laughs> uh, but they did have a sense of, of, of a will to supersede. Now, this is on a very, very kind of orthodox Marxist reading of what the French Revolution is. Lots of people have questioned this. And so, you know, they had a kind of broad outline sense of, of, um, of, of the sets of social institutions and forms of life that they wanted to transcend. Um, mm. And I think Marx has the same kind of uh, uh, sense of... Uh, imminent possibilities um and so do the frankfurt school at their most optimistic not at their most pessimistic Mm. um but because they believe that history doesn't happen by someone setting out a blueprint and then forcing everyone to live by it which is what the sort of early utopian socialists maybe have believed um they can't write what marx called the recipes for the cookshops of the future um I think you're absolutely right to go back to Rousseau. It, it, I kind of think of Marcuse on Freud as a bit like Rousseau on Hobbes. You know, mm. Rousseau says Hobbes's state of nature is kind of right. Hobbes's state of nature is famously a war of all against all. Um, that features in slightly moderated ways, but that sort of features in Rousseau's second discourse. It's just not the start of the story. It's not the natural starting point. It is a thing that has to be constructed. And part of what, and Freud sounds very much like Hobbes when he says there are just these natural desires um, for aggression and destructiveness. Mm. Um, with an interesting sort of difference that Marcuse is not simply saying those desires are constructed. Why do you read them as natural? He's saying those desires, it really may be that there's a natural thanatos, a death drive. It's just that it, that death drive means highly particular things in a capitalist society because particular technologies allow it to mean things. So a death drive gives a man in a suit the ability to drop a nuclear weapon. Um, Mm. And a different kind of society might still have a death drive, but it wouldn't allow, I think it was Barack Obama who had, you know, sort of every Thursday a list of names on his desk and he ticked them off and chose who was going to extrajudicially assassinate in a drone strike and then boasts about it in his recent memoirs, I think, Um, or, you know, expresses kind of hollow uh, sorrow. Uh, that as a pathological form of, obviously pathological form of behavior, it isn't that no one would feel those desires, perhaps. Marcuse might think that no one would feel those kinds of, uh, any kind of aggressive desires. But, but it's more uh, immediately that we wouldn't have the same ability to realize those desires in violent and aggressive ways if we didn't have an office like the presidency of the United States at the head mm-hmm. of an imperial hegemon. So uh, that actually brings me to, in mentioning imperialism, brings me to uh, the specificity of, of Marcuse's sense of the answer, which you ask about. Um, because framing Eros and civilization and especially uh, the, the kind of the political preface, as Marcuse calls it, that he adds 10 years after its initial publication, is a sense of anti-colonial revolution. So a sense that um, he has recovered some of Lukács' pessimism for a post-war 1950s and 60s world. Uh, he's out of the deep pessimism of Adorno and Horkheimer, but he's recovered it in a slightly novel form. Not any longer by cherishing the identical subject object of history, which is the proletarian factory worker in Germany uh, or England, um, but instead by, one, focusing more on the development of those, what Marx called forces of production. Um, the, he calls capitalist society overdeveloped 
um, because he says it, uh, um, it has developed such uh, possibilities for automation and technological development that, um, that we could now move beyond the need for miserable, alienated work. Um, so he's focusing on the material possibilities rather than the particular subjective standpoint, um, uh, the, 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 the subject that, that Lukács focuses on as emancipatory. But where he does come to focus on the subject, he's interested in the kind of broader, slightly more diffuse coalition, which includes some workers in the West, as well as, say, students, and as well as anti-colonial revolutionaries from Vietnam to South Africa. Um, uh, and so Marcuse has that very new left sense of a new kind of uh, emancipatory coalition, um, which together might um, might overthrow, might sort of shut off capitalism in its engine room in the West, and also <laughs> cut off its access to what Lenin called super profits, colonial super profits um, all over the world. And so by that kind of two pronged assault, um, um, destroy capitalist uh, reproduction in a, in, a, in a view that's less a search for a kind of singular agent that has the neatness of Lukacs's picture of the world, um, in which. Uh, the working class is the essence, the underpinning of capitalist society, and then will overcome uh, and transcend it. Um, Marcuse's picture, I think, is slightly more sprawling. Yeah, and and yeah, I think it's worth bringing out too. And I'd like to get your your take on this. In in Marcuse, I, I was reading uh, Mark Fisher's recent, you know, post capitalist desires final lectures recently, and there's a bit where he's talking about Marcuse, and one of the things he points out is that Marcuse was very tuned into this process that we've already talked about, you know, whereby. Capital must always prevent that awareness amongst people that they could live differently and have more control over their lives, right? The capital has to keep thwarting and preventing this potential where mm. people realize that things could be different. Mm. And you know, maybe depending where one falls on the ideological spectrum, uh, the idea that capital can do anything, like that it has this kind of will and agency of its own is a very interesting thing to get into. But putting that aside, I, I want to ask about this process in, in Marcuse's writing, because I think it really comes alive and is very relevant in this process of kind of imagining the non-repressive society and trying to move beyond the forms. What, what does he mean when he talks about capital preventing the awareness that things could be different? Is this something that Marcuse really sees as kind of at work here? Well, uh, well, in one-dimensional man, yes. In Eros mm -hmm. and Civilization, less so, because I think it's a more optimistic text. And so you can see, I'm trying to hint to you that the Frankfurt School is engaged in a constant kind of oscillation yeah. between optimism and, and pessimism. And I think you're right to raise this as a tension. You know, I, I, I uh, um, you know, you mentioned when we were talking about Adorno and Horkheimer, the, the, the idea that perhaps there are more spaces of contestation than they allow for. Um, it's a very important criticism of their reading of mass popular culture, that they read it as sort of pure ideology, pure expression of, of capital. Um, and that seems to me enormously impoverishes their sense of what jazz music is, for example. Mm. Um, uh, and, and, and they could do with a sense of culture as much more in the manner of maybe some of those English social historians like E.P. Thompson, um, who read even law, certainly popular culture, as a site of antagonism, a site of struggle, um, rather than being simply the terrain of, uh, of, of, of control by capital. So uh, the culture industry essay is that high point of pessimism. Eros and civilization is the high point of 1960s optimism. And the mm. Frankfurt School is often, uh, yeah, as I say, moving between, uh, moving between those points. Certainly in One Dimensional Man, Marcuse treats the um, sort of totalizing achievement of capital as its invasion, even of those spaces which once were um, antagonistic to it. Um, so that um, capital has become total, has reached its, what Hegel might call its absolute point, right? It has become absolute, which is to say it has um, uh, reduced, even annihilated um, those multidimensional aspects of life, which were the uh, uh, tension between the reproduction and the disruption of the system. Um, mm -hmm. in, in 1960s and 70s, Marxism 
there is a moment of great optimism about the idea that that actually isn't the case, that people got too pessimistic. And mm. that if you take, for example, the traditions of autonomist Marxism, they come to read every uh, move that capital makes as a defensive response, in which everything capital does is actually a response to the constant presence, the activity of working class subjectivity as a, as a point of resistance that capital must face. But the other interesting thing that I think Marcuse is doing in Eros and Civilization, for us now reading it so many years on, um, is providing us with a critique that we ought to remember of post-war society. You know, you, you mentioned Mark Fisher um, has these very interesting lectures um, in which, yeah, he, he sort of, him, his lectures for a syllabus, his last syllabus that he taught to his students and Marcuse is on the syllabus. Um, and I think he makes Marcuse a bit too much a child of our own world. I think hmm. it's very important to read Eros and Civilization as a product of a world quite different from ours, a world in which people assumed they didn't see what we now call neoliberalism coming. They assumed the perpetual, uh, well, the perpetuation of a world in which states and capitalists were intertwined in a corporatist nexus that was really delivering the goods in terms of rising living standards to workers mm. in the West. Um, and uh, was dependent, as Marcuse would see it, on all kinds of violent forms of, of domination overseas. You know, Vietnam, the struggle of the Vietnamese people was very important to him against American imperialism. Um, but that's true much more generally, um, the way the United States relates to South America, as I think Kennedy called it, our backyard. Um, but, but nonetheless, that capital was able to achieve this stable, very, very high rates of growth. Um, and so in, improvements in the living standards of workers in uh, what used to be called the advanced capitalist countries by Marxists, what we now call mm -hmm. the global north. Um, and Marcuse is trying to give you a form of critique that is therefore, that can't rely on the kinds of economistic critiques of capitalism that had really taken off amid the Great Depression, in which it was just, you know, look, capitalism is making people, making workers very poor. Capitalism is very unstable and moves between boom and bust and the crises that it causes produce huge misery. The stability of the post-war period rules out for Marcuse the possibility of that critique. And so we get instead a turn to social pathology, which is a form of critique that seems to work even under conditions of capitalist success and prosperity. And also we get as our normative framing, something like a return of the idea of freedom, um, uh, rather than just the idea of, you know, wealth. Um, I want to be, I want to have more of my money as a worker. I don't want capitalists exploiting it from me. Um, mm -hmm. It's a sense that what capital does is this crucial word for Freud that Marcuse takes and politicizes, represses us. Um, it doesn't just exploit us. Um, and, and our freedom from domination rather than merely from exploitation is the kind of agenda which clearly is not realized by a social democratic society in which I still participate in a, in a form of labor um, uh, that, uh, that dominates me, uh, in which I'm dominated by the marketplace and I have to go to work each day, even if I'm no longer plagued by the specter of mass unemployment. Um, uh, mm. it's, it's a form of critique, um, I think, highly attentive to those novel conditions of apparent capitalist stability, which are very generative conditions for critique, because they make possible um, uh, where labour seems to be the horizon, uh, rather than just the unlikely aspiration in times of mass unemployment, uh, they make possible a critique of the labour process itself. And Marcuse has very interesting texts from the late 1960s, um, in, in which he talks about a kind of end of history, uh, well before Francis Fukuyama pioneered that phrase, um, uh, mm. or, you know, stole it from Hegel. Um, uh, an end of history in the post-war period, which is very different from the 1990s post-Cold War, liberal democratic end of history. No, this is a social democratic end of history in which we're all tied to the drudgery of waged work and we're told it's marvellous because we've got a fridge uh, and, and, a, and, a, and a TV um, <laughs> and, and, a, and a car in the driveway. Um, mm. And in, in, in trying to hone a critique of that highly particular form of capitalist society, uh, Marcuse, I think, comes to some very, begins to sketch out some very interesting possibilities around the critique of labour itself, uh, our conscription to abstract labour as a form of domination. 
Yeah. And I, I think that's that's really a, a great way to move out of the Frankfurt School is to have this vision of the optimism that Marcuse w- was bringing into this. Uh, as you can tell, I've been soaked in, in the kind of pessimistic view. So I appreciate taking on the, the movement of the optimism. Um, and you're, you're also right uh, that we should point out that this was all happening before the neoliberal turn, which was not in the in the kind of foresight of, of people who were looking at what was what was happening. So let's move in that direction. Then we can go to uh, Michel Foucault, right? Foucault, a French philosopher, uh, born in in the 1920s in France, dies in Paris in, in the mid 80s. Uh, but he is very much interested in neoliberalism, and he, especially later in his life, does a a lot of writing on on something that you and I have been talking about. This strain, the underlying logic of the entire program. Um, and I think that's a very interesting bridge to help us see kind of the the relationship between the development of neoliberal capitalism and the development of the self living within neoliberal capitalism. So, so what is Foucault kind of coming out of the Frankfurt School and into this the beginning of the neoliberal period? What what does he bring to this? Yeah, so this is a body of thinking that has recently achieved uh, great vogue in the academy uh, with the translation of Foucault's late 1970s lectures at the Collège de France, um, especially for thinking about neoliberalism, his series of lectures on the the birth of of what he calls biopolitics, um, uh, long languished, untranslated and and now recently translated um, and to great acclaim. Um, to great claim, really, because they seem to add a third uh, way of talking about neoliberalism. And you'll see the moment I mention this, why it's important for our purposes, um, a third way to the existing duality. So it was it was thought, I think, in recent years that you could critics of neoliberalism could plump for idealist accounts in which neoliberalism was uh, this massive historical transformation that left behind that apparently stable world Marcuse had been trying to uh, critique. Um, uh, and it was engineered by a group of intellectuals at the Mont Pelerin Society um, uh, who were brilliant economists and philosophers and had been sort of honing their program for years. And this is the view you get in scholars like Philip Morawski or Daniel Stedman Jones, or more recently, a very brilliant book, I think, Angus Bergen's uh, book on reinventing markets in the Depression, um, which gives a huge amount of agency to ideas and to individuals who produce those ideas and who, and who wooed the world and managed to transform it. And then finding impoverished that sense that ideas can reign supreme, uh, thinking instead that there must be material conditions of possibility in which ideas are able to gain a foothold. Uh, Marxist accounts, most famously associated with David Harvey, um, treat neoliberalism, but with loads of others too, treat neoliberalism um, as a as a class project um, or of a class, a capitalist class that um, uh, had been dealing with a problem that Keynes's colleague, Kalecki, Polish colleague, highlighted as early as Keynes's sort of formulation of what became the post-war consensus, where Kalecki says, look, you might be able to develop in this social democratic, uh, welfareist, whatever you want to call it, settlement, uh, high rates of profit for capital. Um, but the full employment that you're guaranteeing is going to significantly undermine the class power of capitalists to discipline workers and their wage claims um, by with the threat of unemployment, the threat of addition to what Marx had called the reserve army of labour, the unemployed. Um, and so uh, capital isn't going to put up with this social democratic settlement forever. Kalecki predicted that it, they, they would uh, accept it for about 30 years and then rebel. Um, Vanessa Ogle recently has this amazing work on archipelago capitalism, in which she traces how capitalists went and sort of shored all their profits off overseas in sort of offshore havens, waiting for the return of an age of capitalist class power in the social democratic years. Um, mm-hmm. I have various problems with accounts of this process uh, that... Um, 
uh, give give too much kind of maniacal agency to a group of capitalists anymore hmm. than I think we should give it to a group of uh, genius economists like Milton Friedman and his colleagues at Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. But the Foucauldian tradition of thinking about neoliberalism seems to offer a third option, uh, uh, which I don't think actually is, uh, I mean, all of these things can work together. This is not like they're, they're mutually inconsistent uh, um, uh, alternatives. Um, um, Foucault stresses the neoliberal transformations of the self. Um, reading this process not as a matter of some ideas from some economists or as a matter or, or, uh, which are just about policy as a realm wholly separate from the self, nor as the class power of capitalists, though Foucault's account doesn't rule out the possibility of either of those processes. In fact, he's very interested um, in at least one, and I actually think both. Um, but he, uh, in the Birth of Biopolitics lectures, uh, is interested, as he has throughout his life, in uh, the process of subjectivation. So rather than reading power in this kind of negative model as the ban, power comes and stops you from doing things, he's interested in reading power as productive. How is it that power acts on us and makes us in particular ways? And in coming to think about neoliberalism, he wants to trace the highly particular ways in which neoliberal society, on Foucault's reading, is the use of power to make us all in the image of something like the economy or even the economists, um, which is to make us um, uh, not just a market economy, but a market society. Um, uh, This is the image of the American neoliberals who could differentiate from the German neoliberals. Um, And, um, and so to remake our experience of the world by making something like the market, the grid through which all human relations are read. So this involves, you will realise, a particular critique of Marx on that process of labour's abstraction that I've been talking about in our discussion, right? Because for Foucault, the work of rendering labour abstract is not just a material fact of capitalist production, which is how Marx had read it. It's a discursive error of neoclassical economics. Um, mm. this, is, um, this is the particular critique of Marx that Foucault identifies with the neoliberals, where neoclassical economics had read labour, like Marx had read labour, as this abstraction. Um, you can just, it's just, for neoclassical economics, labour is just a factor of production that you just input along with, you know, land and capital. Um, uh, and that fails to care for the production of labour in fine-grained, concrete ways, where you have to, power has to act on labourers in order to produce them in highly particular ways. And, um, so Foucault identifies the move from Keynesianism and, and much orthodox economic, it seems, uh, orthodox economics, uh, I think, um, to neoliberalism in the move from macro questions um, as the problematic of the economy, you know, questions about the balance of payments and questions about um, uh, the, the economy treated as a, as, a, as a grand social unit to micro questions about the production of this key term in one of the late chapters of the birth of biopolitics, human capital. And so the 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 treatment of uh, those things in my life which I might yesterday have regarded as my tastes as instead my human capital so that I become not just a worker as I might have been in any kind of capitalist society but an entrepreneur of myself producing my own human capital which I can then sell on the marketplace this is something which has to be trained generated and honed by neoliberals who must then come to think even of, for example, cr- poli- uh, government policies around crime um, as uh, through this economic grid of how we're going to uh, uh, increase human capital, stop the destruction of human capital by criminal behaviour. So everything gets read um, 
uh, through this grid of the homo economicus, um, uh, which isn't any longer the, the stress on exchange, which is so crucial in those early words of Adam Smith, the start of the wealth of nations. Instead, the homo economicus is not, it's not exchange which defines capitalism, it's production, and it's the production of a particular kind of self, the homo economicus. Um, and that, Foucault thinks, is an extreme uh, phenomenon, a kind of sub- a submission, subordination of life to uh, not just uh, the economy, as Marx and Lukács had it, but to the economists and to economics, um, uh, which becomes the new kind of master discipline uh, arranging life. And, and that, Foucault thinks, is a way of reading uh, some of the novelties of neoliberalism. Yeah, yeah. Foucault is fascinating on this. He he has a passage where he points out the way that neoclassical economics and thus the, the neoliberal politics on top of it managed to construct the theoretical basis that would justify this kind of expansionary element or the extension that we've been talking about into spheres of life that are that seem to be uh, more than or beyond or other than economic, right? Where rational conduct is defined by uh, the optimal allocation of resources. So in, in, in the passage, Foucault is talking about Gary Becker in particular, right? Who's part of this milieu you talked about, uh, Friedman, the Chicago school. He's an economist who's squarely in the neoliberal tradition. He's done a lot of work on expanding economic models to encompass uh, family life, for example. And I'll apologize to listeners in advance, but I think I, I, I want to read a little bit of Foucault here because it's it's so on the nose with what we're talking about. Foucault writes, Becker says, basically, economic analysis can perfectly well find its points of anchorage and effectiveness if an individual's conduct answers to the single clause that the conduct in question reacts to reality in a non-random way. That is to say, any conduct which responds systematically to modifications in the variables of the environment, in other words, any conduct, as Becker says, which, quote, accepts reality, must be susceptible to economic analysis. Homo economicus is someone who accepts reality. Rational conduct is any conduct which is sensitive to modifications in the variables of the environment and which responds to this in a non-random way, in a systematic way, and economics can therefore be defined as the science of the systematic nature of responses to environmental variables. So Foucault draws out this definition from Becker of homo economicus, basically saying that anyone who responds rationally to changes in their environments can be analyzed in economic terms. And he takes this definition, Foucault, to go where he really wants to go. And he says, now in Becker's definition, which I have just given, Homo economicus, the person who accepts reality or who responds systematically to modifications in their environment, appears precisely as someone manageable, someone who responds systematically to systematic modifications artificially introduced into the environment. Homo economicus is someone who is eminently governable. So this positions economics almost as a discipline and maybe neoliberal economics or a science of control, one that manages human behavior kind of discreetly behind the scenes, right? By adjusting the environments rather than directly telling us what to do in that more Mm. traditional form of power. Mm. And I I think it's that same kind of subtlety uh, and and the mechanisms of control that are embedded in the environment and therefore difficult to see Mm. that are at play when we talk about, you know, what capitalist society has to do with producing human beings, with shaping consciousness. Yes, I mean, absolutely. Uh, I am sceptical of those recent readings of Foucault that want to claim his covert sympathies with neoliberalism, because I think they reinforce precisely the kind of binary between uh, bureaucratic, corporatist, controlling, planning, managerial states in the immediate post-war period and freeing 
markets of the kind that Milton Friedman so effectively um, advertised. Uh, that very binary between uh, the post-war consensus and, and neoliberalism that Foucault actually uh, is extremely uh, adept at upsetting uh, mm-hmm. in precisely the ways you just highlighted. So um, because Foucault treats power as something more complicated than um, the arrival of a state to ban us from doing things, because he treats it instead as this multiple and diffuse um, uh, mode of producing us as particular people, not something wielded by one person over something else, but something that we all wield against and over each other and ourselves constantly. Um, he can therefore read this apparently liberating moment uh, that frees up markets from control of, from control by the state in a much deeper way as um, the, the, the production of, as you say, manageable population populations, whether that's prisoners who must, uh, you know, this is to take an extreme example, or who must um, treat their human capital um, as something to be maximized by taking part in prison labor, um, or whether it's um, uh, university students, here's an example that interested Mark Fisher, who you mentioned, um, who were always interpolated by power um, when the university lecturer lines them up in a certain way and addresses them one by one and, and, and disciplines them and expects certain forms of address or even forms of dress from them, but now who must see themselves as honing by being at university their human capital that they will then expend in the world. Um, um, and it's worth saying that Foucault ordinarily prefers Nietzsche to Hegel, that is, as Weber did. That is to say, Foucault prefers the uh, genealogy, the mode of genealogy to the mode of dialectics. Uh, in Nietzsche's way of thinking about uh, historical processes, you have the sort of chance contingent encounter of different things, which then produce uh, particular outcomes, not the unfolding of a single logic, as in a traditional reading of Hegel's sense of dialectics. Uh, Weber had liked Nietzsche a lot uh, for the same reason. He's, he's keener on contingency. than, than And as we saw, this is where Lukács and Adorno and Horkheimer um, and, and Marcus differ from from Weber. So normally Foucault is very much on that Nietzsche side of genealogy. Um, And so he doesn't want to read neoliberalism as just the unnecessary unfolding of the process of capitalist society where you have a ruling class and it's going to assert its interests. Um, uh, He he, he reads it much more contingently. But it's worth stressing that in this period that's sometimes now referred to as Foucault's political turn around 1968, unsurprisingly, he sometimes speaks much more in the language of kind of capitalism and the self, which would be to take all of these techniques of power as subjectivating, as rooted in the needs of capitalist society. So he has this amazing text, uh, uh, a sort of speech he gives to a group of, I think, Brazilian students, which has been recently translated into English um, and published on the Amazing Viewpoint magazine website, which is an extraordinary uh, sort of collection of archival documents. Um, Mm. And the late and great Christopher Chitty, a PhD student working on on, on Foucault and capitalism, um, has an amazing translation and introduction to this text. He calls it the mesh of power. Um, And there Foucault seems to treat these various subjectivating mechanisms that might previously have escaped the attention of critics of capitalism, like the clinic, um, the uh, the asylum, um, the school, um, as well as the factory, as um, sites for the subjectivating effects of power in order to discipline us individually uh, and also to discipline us as part of a collective called population, which can then be managed by this new science of biopolitics, which manages the life of this group uh, the population. Um, uh, and so Foucault reads neoliberalism as a finessing of that and a transformation of that by the conversion of the logic through which we're managed from a logic of political theory or political science into a logic of economics. That is, we become homo economicus, not the citizen who must be managed as part of the population, neither, as in a Smithian uh, mentality, something like the customer who must be managed. Uh, we become the producers, all of us, of human capital. Um, so it's a distinctive mode of, of producing us as particular kinds of subjects um, uh, 
for life within a capitalist society. Um, I don't think of this as an apologetic celebratory uh, presentation of neoliberalism, um, though some readers of Foucault do do think of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And so with Foucault, I think it's a little more difficult, but, and, and especially, you know, Foucault's writing at, at the beginning of this kind of neoliberal turn, but before we move on from him, d- does he have any farther looking, does he have any speculation on, on what to do? What is his kind of solution stance to all this? Well, I think one useful thing that comes out in that brief speech on the mesh of power is that Foucault highlights in passing, but I take it to be very important to him, a kind of expansion of our sense of the political that comes from this way of talking. So that if you see power as the ban, uh, you might see it as constituted in the state. And Foucault says the Marxist tradition for thinking the critique of capitalism has uh, been sort of waylaid, has, has, has taken a, a wrong step that it's then uh, regurgitated again and again by thinking of the state as the central locus of power. And so think about mm-hmm. politics as the seizure of the state. Um, or even in some traditions, just the reform of the st- reforms uh, engineered by the state, rather than thinking about power as something which is situated in all of these different sites. And that allows for endlessly different sites of contestation. So though Foucault thinks of, of there being no outside of power, um, he doesn't have the same kind of pessimism, at least in this political turn moment uh, in the late 1960s and, and early 1970s. He, he doesn't have uh, the same pessimism that Adorno and Horkheimer have, because he thinks that the existence of constant uh, diffuse, as I say, networks of power makes for the existence of constant uh, resistance and struggle. Um, And it needn't be on a kind of narrow plane through which he thinks politics, including Marxist politics, has tried to contest um, power. And this is especially a problem if you claim to be a Marxist because you want to contest capitalism. And Mm -hmm. Foucault seems to be telling us, well, capitalism uh, is, is doing its work by producing subjects, not only through the state, but through all of these other arenas like the classroom and the uh, hospital waiting room or the, hmm. uh, you, you know, you know, so many different places yeah. um, uh, it, that Foucault sees it operating, which opens up so many different kinds of contestation for a very broad Foucauldian politics um, that could try to disrupt the reproduction and indeed the iteration um, of, of capitalist social norms. That is to say, reproduction is a question how am I trained in a school um, so that I will be a disciplined, good student and then go out to, and work? Um, and iteration is the question, how, does the pow- how do the power dynamics of the school, um, uh, 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 how are they analogous um, to and how do they therefore figure um, and represent the same kinds of power dynamics that it is to be a, a consumer? You know, I might have an abstract sort of exam number that, I, that, that, that regulates my progress through school, just as I have a sense of my abstract uh, emptiness as a worker or consumer in capitalist society. So Foucault's trying to open up our sense of the avenues for both the presence and the possible contestation of, of subjectivation, of the formation by capitalism of the self, our, our subject for discussion today, though this is to highlight the fact that in Foucault's, I, this is where I think Foucault comes closest to Marx and wants to say, I'm ex- I mean, he says it in that Mesh of Power talk, you know, I'm extending some of what Marx is doing. Um, I think elsewhere, um, uh, there, there are differences and, and he, he doesn't want to reduce all of these aspects of um, subjectivation to capitalism. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's really interesting too. I think just a couple of years before Foucault died, he taught a seminar at uh, the University of Vermont. Uh, I think it was something like the technologies of the self. And, you know, this, the, the way that you framed his kind of vision of, of how to move forward, I think there's, we find a lot of resonance in his writing on technologies of the self, which for him are the methodologies, the practices by which we act upon ourselves in order to transform ourselves, to transform our bodies, our ways of relating 
into something else in accord with whatever kind of scheme of value we hold. And uh, his work on technologies of the self, to me, it, it's it's almost as if I'd like to see, I think what we're doing today almost is seeing how to apply that to the idea of the economy as a technology of the collective. I think it makes sense to see the economy as a methodology by which we are acting upon ourselves in order to transform ourselves. And the degree of participation and representation in, in, in that process, I think, is very much you know up for up for debate here to, to, to look at how to take the reins of that process. But I think that his writing on technologies of the self as a response to this kind of governmentality that came out of the neoliberal logic is very relevant throughout this conversation today of the ways in which um, economies not only do these things to us, but the ways in which we can participate in economies to do these things to ourselves. Right? And, and I think mm. we'll talk about this a little later, but this is why the idea, for, for example, economic democracy to me holds a lot of weight, because if you see the economy as a phenomena, as a collectivity, as, as a thing that is kind of we are creating via our norms, via these institutions, via these policies, and then it kind of feed, feeds back, turns back to recreate us. It's a really interesting process whereby we're almost participating in our own construction in the kind of Foucauldian sense of, of the technology, the self. So I, I really I really appreciate his writing there as, as a way to kind of um, be in conversation with his writing on neoliberalism. Um, wow. I mean, I, you know, I want once again to be the kind of miserable presence that I keep being. Um, and, oh, good. Check, please check tear it apart. Check your attempt at optimism. I mean, I mean. I, I, we can say more about economic democracy. I just want to stick with Foucault for now. Yeah. Um, uh, look, I think you're, you're 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 noticing something absolutely right, which is in Foucault's latest last work, um, uh, amid the uh, ascent of what we would now regard as the kind of high the zenith of neoliberal hegemony. Well, maybe not the zenith, but the 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 the, the, the coming of neoliberal hegemony, because mm-hmm. um, he dies at the start of the 1980s. It's interesting that in that last work, in his uh, so-called ethical turn, um, people now call it, he's very interested in quite subtle and quite um, certainly much less ambitious, I think, actually, than someone like Lukács or Marcuse would recognise, but attempts to think about antagonistic oppositional possibilities to the worlds of power that he's constructed through the recovery, for example, of ancient traditions of, of Parisia, of talk, speaking truth to power. Um, and mm-hmm. he becomes very interested in, in, in a very particular conception of what ethics would be um, um, and, and what it would mean to oppose power um, with an ethic, which I think I think is similar to what you're talking about in terms of an attempt to bring processes of subjectivation under some kind of control, uh, which isn't alien to us. Though this is already to speak in a very Marxist frame in the language of alienation. Mm. Um, is, is a language Foucault really didn't like because he thought of it as indelibly humanist. The, you know, you're alienating from some some real human thing which precedes construction, social construction. And Foucault, uh, uh, here he really is, Althusser's student, um, is very keen on the idea that, um, that, 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 that subjectivation is always an act of construction. There is no kind of natural subjectivation to which we should appeal. But, you know, I, I think you're right that there is this attempt to, 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 to grasp at some straws of optimism um, in Foucault's um, very late work. But there's a problem. It seems to me a fundamental problem that Foucault means to present for what it is to think about politics. And that is that whereas Marx had quite comfortably used Enlightenment ideas, Enlightenment norms, um, like a sense of autonomy against heteronomy, you know, a heteronomous condition is a condition where um, I am not in control 
of the processes that reproduce my life. And, and, and a sense of collective autonomy, collective control, collective self-mastery um, over the processes of our life that had motivated Rousseau. It then seems to me Marx is extending that sense over into the realm we now call the economy. Marx would just say the full extent of social relations um, determined by the value form, um, uh, so that uh, self-mastery is not just about making our own laws, but is about not being subject to the whims of this abstraction called the marketplace, which can make the unemployed tomorrow if, if the business mm. I work for goes under. Um, and so Marx has that enlightenment norm of, of, of that Rousseauian norm of self-mastery, and he's, he's, he's assailing capitalism for clearly failing to realise it. Foucault, yeah. though, wants to treat those enlightenment norms as somewhat darker. Um, in this sense, we might say that Marx focusing on the factory as the key site of capitalism and Foucault focusing perhaps on the asylum as the key site of 19th century power um, is, and that's to overstate the difference. Um, uh, uh, but um, but certainly in his early way, Madness and Civilization, you know, it seems that it's the key site. Um, we might say that's more than just in this kind of uh, hopeful uh, Marxist reading of Foucault that I gave earlier, um, uh, just a kind of broadening of the sense of those realms that capital um, uh, 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 constructs and reconstructs and subjectivates. It, it might be that there's a bigger difference between focusing on the factory, which is producing goods, and focusing on the asylum, which is here you have the bourgeois norms of the rational planning and control over life, not as unrealized by the anarchic realm of the marketplace in which the capitalist factory operates, but instead as fully realized by the attempt to discipline subjects who seem to be crazy, mad, irrational, whatever you want to call it in your 19th century terms, and, and put them through the brutal, violent process uh, that was common to the 19th century asylum or indeed the workhouse. Um, so I think the focus, but actually, no, I mean, yeah, the workhouse is a much less clear-cut example there than the asylum. So the, in that sense, Foucault it presents a problem for politics because he wants to say the norms through which you might have constructed your anti-capitalist politics are themselves norms uh, created by the same historical processes that created mm. capitalism. And for Marx, that's not a problem because the point about imminent critique is capitalism can create things that allow for its own overcoming, like the idea of individuality, the idea of rational self-mastery. But for right. Foucault, it's a slightly darker story in which um, rational self-mastery, individuality, these bourgeois norms, I think, are... Uh, shot through with forms of domination rather than being hopeful, starry things and the forms of domination that coexist with them are merely markers of their incomplete application. Mm. Okay, so we'll take what I wanted to describe as the potency of Foucault's technology of the self conceived as a, as a technology, the collective, with a big grain of salt, right? That, that being that Foucault was highly cautious, if not skeptical, of our capacity to change systems from within the conditioning of those systems. So one thing that we have not directly touched on yet, but that is, I think, highly relevant to the question of how capitalist society produces particular forms of, of consciousness is the ways in which things like gender and race, if, especially if you're not part of the norm, which in our case will be a white and heterosexual male, create particular subjectivities or selves that are indelibly shaped by the kind of patterned experiences that follow from being something other than that white heterosexual male. And you know, it's interesting because Marx had a stance on this that I think remains today, which is uh, to claim that, you know, until there is freedom for all, there's freedom for none. You know, he wrote famously that labor in a white skin cannot emancipate itself where it is branded in a black skin. And then he goes on to point out, you know, that following the death of slavery in the American Civil War, that the reduction of the working week, which in his time meant securing an eight hour workday for all, you know, whether black or white uh, was the means by which, for example, racial disparities would be leveled. And it's interesting because you can trace the same kind of movement in the thought of someone like Martin Luther King Jr., 
who towards the end of his life kind of began more explicitly advocating for poor people rather than exclusively for black people because he believed it was, you know, through this broad economic justice, this this broad stroke that class disparities would be best handled and you would get the right kind of political organization. And, and for him, rather than a workday, he looked at a, a basic income. And I think there's a lot of, of really interesting and important debate on whether something like a universalist approach is a just response to racial and gendered injustices. But I do think that the line that you and I have been exploring today about how consciousness, the self, takes its shape under and through capitalist society points out an area where universalism is inadequate, right? We ignore too much by not focusing on the particularities of for, uh, the black experience in capitalist society, for example, which is a place where the pressures exerted are more vivid and immediate and dislocating. And thankfully, um, this space has not been ignored in the realm of social philosophy and pathology. So how have social pathologists or theorists seen the role of race and gender in this process of, of producing subjectivity? So I think I, I, I agree with, with m most of what you've just said. And I think that um, there's a very rich thinking about this question. So if I said that Marcuse has a particular way of critiquing civilization, its discontents, which is to say uh, that the, this picture that Freud presents is sort of broadly right, not totally right, but broadly right. The main problem with it is that it's more historically finite than Freud thinks it is. Um, mm -hmm. There's a markedly different approach to the critique of that text that you get from Franz Fanon and from Simone de Beauvoir. And Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks and de Beauvoir's Second Sex are amazingly sort of parallel instances, I think, of thinking questions like social pathology. Uh, with all sorts of extraordinary similarities um, that these these two texts and 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 it seems to me that they're leveling a criticism and they're both deeply engaged with psychoanalysis as well as with um, uh, Hegel and Marx. Um, it seems to me that their criticism is to say that in civilization its discontents, Freud gives us a picture of, and this is I'm saying this because it's to respond exactly to what you've just said. Freud gives us a picture of abstract human beings um, who meet one another as individuals and then develop. Uh, repressive mechanisms, you know, and, and develop, for example, a reality principle to regulate a pleasure principle in order to regulate and to mediate the encounters between individuals in forming a thing called a society. You can tell already why I said um, mm. I find that I find there to be a kind of Hobbesian element in in um, in Freud. But rather than making the Rousseauist criticism, oh, we're not just individuals because uh, we're, we're socially produced, or, or rather um, uh, uh, um, deepening that claim. Fanon and de Beauvoir seem to start from a position which says, read people not as blank individuals, but as subjects cons constituted through wielding or lacking power. And so the intersubjective encounter through which we develop social pathologies and through which we develop various kinds of repression and various kinds of neuroses are not... Uh, best understood if you imagine that we all meet each other as abstract individuals. Um, for example, Fanon has this very powerful example, it seems to me, um, in Black Skin, White Masks about a patient, a uh, little girl who has, um, now I'm simplifying the example here, uh, uh, but, but, but a little girl who has nightmares like something like a kind of terrifying gorilla or something invading her home. Mm -hmm. um, and her analysts, it seems to Fanon, have missed a key fact, which is that she's like 
the daughter of a colonial governor or uh, lives in a settler colonial fortress or something like that. In which case it comes to seem that her nightmares are the, are the product of living a kind of paranoid existence, as Rousseau had long ago told us was the condition, the miserable condition of power, a kind of paranoid existence in which you must be constantly afraid of others around you uh, and are unable to relate to others as human beings. And certainly as the kind of abstract individuals where you're also an abstract individual, as Freud had sort of mostly given us in civilization, it's discontents. Um, instead, she is coded as white in a place surrounded by people coded as black, and that matters to the genesis of her neurosis. Um, mm. And that's just missed by psychoanalysts, Freudians, who uh, want to treat her as an abstract individual, um, who might have universal experiences of like an electro complex or, um, you know, various kinds of things that are, that are common to everyone uh, for, for Freudians, um, and are not attending to her specificity. So, yeah, I, mean, I think it's worth saying something about some of those specificities. You know, Fanon yeah. gives you, for example, the failure of the the, the the project of the superego that Freud had traced in Civilization, its discontents, which is kind of modelled on the father figure. You know, I, I, as a child, know that if I grab a sweet chocolate biscuit um, when I'm not supposed to, my father's going to slap me on the wrist or, in our contemporary age, explain to me why I've done something wrong. Um, and, um, and, I, and, and I relate to the lawgiver, to the police, um, through that model. Um, of the father figure. And so mm-hmm. Fanon then attends to what is obviously a crucial question for anyone living in a violently racialized society, which is what if you live in a moment in which your father uh, is not outside the home, treated with any kind of respect as father figure, um, but is instead humiliated and you watch him lined up against a wall and stopped and searched by the police and whatever. Um, that is going to do damage to your ability to treat a kind of transfer between your intimate experience of power and um, your socially mediated experience of power as a citizen and a subject. Um, you know, that's going to that's gonna be very different from what it would mean if your father figure who forms your superego was then uh, treated with respect um, in wider society. Fanon treats also uh, t- talks at great length and quite uh, evocatively. James Baldwin has very similar writings like this. Um, uh, Fanon talks about what it was for him to, uh, as a Martinican to travel to France um, and to realise that he was coded as he was a Negro, the, the, the contemporary term, um, so that uh, where he had grown up with an image of the world in which there were, I mean, cowboys and Indians is James Baldwin's example. Um, uh, colonists and savages is, um, is, is, is Fanon's example. Um, uh, he comes to realise that, in fact, the uh, cowboys or the colonists that he'd been cheering on as models of progressive humanity, you know, going west and or going south and developing the world, um, were in fact beating up people who were coded as him. And when he got to France, he was the savage. Um, and so that ability to form a sense of yourself is violently disrupted when you realise that you are in fact the negation of the self. You are the other who has to be feared. The, the sort of central moment for Fanon in Blatsky White Masks is the child who points at someone like him and says, look, mama, a Negro. Um, you are coded into that role, very influenced by Sartre um, writing on anti-Semitism, in which the, the, the central anti-Semitic move is the construction of something called a Jew as an imagined cipher for the projection of all of your anxieties. Um, mm. um, uh, anti-Semitism for Fanon is uh, the projection of my anxieties about finance and the economy and my job onto this alien being the Jew. Negrophobia, Fanon's term is the projection of my anxieties um, about my sexual impotence onto this idea of this sexually voracious uh, black man. Um, so these are highly particular ways of being constructed as a self, which you can't understand if you think we're all just abstract individuals. Um, and de Beauvoir uh, is strikingly similar 
um, both in treating uh, and this category lived experience, which has now become central to our world, but means something very different for Fanon de Beauvoir than it does for contemporary um, supposedly radical politics. Uh, it's not just something to be affirmed for Fanon de Beauvoir, but it's it's a kind of uh, something to be funneled down through in order to understand um, the, 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 the social processes that produce those experiences. Um, both Fanon and de Beauvoir, in a striking parallel, are interested in the construction of particular lived experiences through regimes of power that both inhibit and debase those targeted as others, the black or the woman, and also those treated as, as superior. In fact, de Beauvoir has this amazing, I think, discussion in the conclusion of The Second Sex, uh, where she says the man is like the colonial governor who can't cease to be a colonial governor. You know, mm. if, if a colonial, listen, here's a kind of interesting parallel to Fanon, because de Beauvoir reads gender as, 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 as more intimate and therefore more difficult to dislodge as a power relation, I think, than race. Um, so where a colonial governor says, what on earth am I to do in dealing with the natives? How am I to regulate them? And our answer, the radical, the revolutionary answer has to be, the only thing you can do is to cease to be a colonial governor. It is the problems that you face and your alienation from those around you. Um, your fear of them, your violence towards them, is mandated by the structure of your position, which is to be ruling over them as a hostile alien presence. So you must go home and give them their independence, Fanon would say. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the only way that you can live a huge, what Fanon would forgot. I mean, Fanon wanted to call black skin, white masks disalienation, right? Uh, he reads it as a process, uh, the process of, of emancipation from, from race and, and from colonialism is a process by which both the colonizer and the colonizer can discover, he really is a humanist here, that their humanity and can treat, can see each other as human beings, not as miserably coded racialized subjects. Um, but de Beauvoir says the problem is, as a man, you can't, as long as you're a man, cease to be the colonial governor. You are a man, you are the colonial governor in every interaction you have with women. Um, and it's a scary image. Mm. And it's interesting with Fanon, he has this this notion, this again, kind of like a stage-like view of how freedom unfolds. He was very careful, I think, to make it clear that the point of something like black freedom, for example, the point of the white man relinquishing his uh, position as, as the colonial governor, right? Relinquishing your position of structural oppression to let a people govern themselves in conditions of freedom was not so that they could be free. You know, the point of developing a national culture from the basis of freedom is not to have this protectionist, fragmented world that is made up of individual factions who are shielded from others and allowed to carry on in their own kind of undisturbed bubbles of, of freedom. The point of black freedom and creating the social conditions for oppressed peoples to be free was not so that they could be free. It was so that everyone could be free, right? So that we could all get together on an international stage, right? Each from our own foundations of freedom and grapple with these questions of, of universal values, of universal culture, but, but that we couldn't get to that point of rightfully debating any sort of universal values or, or culture until the subcultures within the totality of, of, of the world are all coming to the table from this basis of freedom. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's totally right. I mean, Fanon sees the demand for a national culture, as you say, as a kind of transitional one with some importance, but also as a very dangerous one insofar as it affirms the terms of racialization, which would treat you as other and would say, and now you mm. should simply venerate and celebrate your otherness. And we see this a lot in contemporary right. politics, which treats, um, in Afro-pessimist thinking, for example, which which treats what it is to be black as simply the negation um, of, of the idea of the human. Fanon wants to forge an idea of the 
superhuman um, that not only includes black people as well as white people, but, but, but ensures that they cease to be black people and white people. And there's a very arresting passage in Black Skin, White Masks, as I remember it, um, where Fanon says, you know, what is all this talk of, of blackness? Of, I think he says like something like a Negro nationality. You know, he says, I'm a Frenchman. And he claims the achievements of France. And, and he, you know, to, to say that Plato is white, and so uh, you must form a national culture as a black person that celebrates um, African philosophy in opposition to Plato, is precisely to do the work of racialization. Mm. There was no sense of whiteness uh, in the age of Plato. Uh, it's a very modern, uh, you know, that word is a very modern construct. Yeah. Um, uh, but, it, but it's to read about, it's a bit like... Um, uh, there's an amazing moment in the mid-19th century where the Times in London um, uh, writes that uh, there have been a people discovered in the mountains of Afghanistan, and this is why the British imperial state must sort of intervene to help them, because these people are blonde-haired and blue-eyed, and therefore they must be the descendants of Alexander the Great. Why assume that Alexander the Great was blonde-haired and blue-eyed? I think most sort of genealogical, yeah. genealogical evidence would doubt that. Well, because he is the birthplace of Europe. He's the starting point of European civilization. So he must have been blonde-haired and blue-eyed. These are the mythologies of racialization. Um, and Fanon seeks to um, obliterate the construction of people as black and white, which he thinks has enslaved and subjectivated in, well, enslaved is, is too touchy a word, but has subjectivated in uh, oppressive and dominating ways, both those constructed as white and those constructed as black, going back to Rousseau, for whom the wealthy as well as the poor are, uh, are, are subjectivated in miserable ways. Um, by yeah. private property. Um, and he wants to get over that in order to form the possibility of a common humanity. De Beauvoir speaks in exactly the same way. She says the liberation of women would be the liberation of men too. And that's what they fear. They don't know how to live outside this condition of kind of paranoia and constant struggle uh, with the second sex. Um, and so de Beauvoir ends the, the, the last line of the second sex. She ends it with a demand for Fraternité, that French revolutionary demand for brotherhood. In, mm. uh, and that's, that's the demand in which she wants to include women. I think this is very different from contemporary forms of politics known to us um, that stress difference and want to affirm and demand recognition for the differences that we have as, and that are constructed by power. Um, this is a form of politics that is not remotely naive to the need for recognition. Um, uh, mm -hmm. for, the, for our, you know, for, for states and, and capitalists and others to recognise us in our particular ways and not exclude us, you know, to provide a ramp so that disabled people can get into a building, uh, for example, but that also thinks that radical politics can move beyond the demand for the recognition of existing identities and that politics can actually inhere in the transformation of identities um, and the formation uh, for Fanon and de Beauvoir uh, of, of a new humanity. Um, that is, as I say, to put them in a very 1950s and 60s French philosophical moment with Sartre as well, that is humanist. Um, and uh, Foucault, uh, without his air, uh, will be very critical of, of some of the assumptions of that language of alienation and disalienation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we've come from Foucault, right, early, um, gets into the early 1980s. Let's move into the present day, right? The, the, these questions that we've been asking and tracing about capitalism and the self. Rousseau and Marx, you know, were kind of at the, at the helm at the beginning of all this. Each, each period, so if you take Rousseau, for example, Rousseau was writing about this through the lens of private property, at least in, in some places, and Marx had his, you know, his own focus. Each period had its own kind of form that it used to explore these questions. And I wanted to ask you, having so thoroughly combed through the history, do you see any kind of present day forms emerging? What are the particular kind of cultural uh, things? So go back to the Frankfurt School. They look at the culture industry as a very particular way of organizing you know, mass media. 
what do we have emerging today that the people, whether the academics, whoever's engaging with these questions, what are the the ways in which they are kind of diving into them? What are the concrete things going on that they use to engage with these questions today? Well, so much to say. Um, I mean, I think that you mentioned, and I mentioned as well, Mark Fisher, whose work on capitalist realism was very influential for, um, well, has, be, has remains very influential and uh, very powerful because Fisher gives us a world in which we experience authoritarian power sufficient to debilitate us amid the offer of freedom sufficient to disorient us. And that's the potent cocktail. So we mm. experience constant monitoring by CCTV cameras and um, constant regulation of the every our every moment at work by clocks and measures that, that treat not just what we do in the day, but what we do every minute, um, and line managers who regulate what we do every minute, um, as well as the offer of a freedom uh, uh, in, in a capitalist marketplace where I won't have the security of a welfare safety net. Um, and that mm. potent cocktail of the worst of Marx's double freedom with uh, with with the worst of or not the worst of with a form of authoritarian power um uh, uh, mark fisher has traced into our present moment or at least you know i think capitalist realism is written like 2009 or something um mm. uh, and a recent book uh because there are lots of different theoretical resources we can use for this there's lots of foucauldian work uh, dardo and laval wendy brown i mentioned earlier on social pathology again i'm, I'm using axel honnold's term here most of these people don't use the language of social pathology but i think it's a helpful way of framing some of the common concerns that unite otherwise apparently quite disparate thinkers so lots of people are interested in foucault's work on power as subjectivating and they take that into lots of different areas i mean it's a huge wealth of foucauldian scholarship on lots of different areas of contemporary life and how power works to subjectivate us there i think reflecting that sort of Nietzsche, not Hegel preference of Foucault, that often this Foucauldian work moves away from an interest in social totality and the ability to talk about something called capital as an abstract logic of impersonal domination that then, as you said in Lukács, sort of like a tea bag uh, colouring a, a mug of tea, mm. colours everything. And instead you get a much more fragmented picture of the world as lots of discrete logics of power. And we could, we could think a lot, I think, about uh, what big political economic shifts in the late 20th century uh, and the decline of an emancipatory subject in the working class, uh, as, as it was imagined in much of the West, generated that shift from uh, totalizing theories of, of single uh, uh, structures of domination like capital um, and, and the opposition to meta-narratives and the turn instead to much more fragmented accounts. But there's lots of Foucauldian thinking about, um, mm. about contemporary social pathology. Um, there are also, uh, and Mark Fisher is, I think, clearly influenced by this, Deleuze, people who follow Deleuze and Guattari's particular sort of recoding of, of the Freudian tradition um, and are interested in questions of, of desire. Um, uh, lots of people have traced this to, 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 to Spinoza's classic question, um, uh, why do people desire their own servitude? Uh, and this is a kind of miserable question mm. that, that, has, that has provoked lots of thinkers in the age of... Um, uh, um, uh, in the age of uh, uh, sort of apparent hegemony and the lack of, of contestation of power. Um, and um, uh, someone like Lazzarato um, uh, has also stressed, and this is again, I think, more in keeping with the Deleuzean tradition than with the Foucauldian one, um, reading um, uh, subjectivation not as simply a process of discourses. You know, Foucault is quite traditional in the birth of biopolitics in reading people like Gary Becker and saying, how did they uh, organise neoliberalism? Uh, but instead, reading semiotic sources. So thinking about how, uh, you know, our engagement with a dizzying world of commodities that are all branded in a particular way as we enter a supermarket uh, might subjectivate us uh, more powerfully uh, or in addition to uh, the, the thinking of Gary Becker subjectivating us. So there are lots of different... Um, 
approaches. I think contemporarily, um, the question of uh, social pathology remains a rich one. And uh, even though, as I say, not always framed in those terms, subject of lots of scholarship, the more difficult question, uh, as ever, uh, is what on earth the way out of it is in our moment. <laughs> right, yeah. I, I should also mention, actually, an interesting, because I, I said there's Foucauldian tradition, there's a Deleuzean tradition, which is less kind of rationalist in, in looking to texts. Uh, affect theory, we talked at the start about Lauren Ballant, is also very different from Foucault in that regard. It uh, wants to think not just about um, uh, how we're subjectivated by ideas, um, but, but wants to think about subjectivity as incorporating uh, systems for regulating emotions and not just thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm also interested in traditions of political theology. Um, uh, so that Adam Kotzko has this very interesting book, uh, uh, neoliberalism's demons, which really seems to me similar to that Mark Fisher point, because for Costco, um, the, the 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 thing about neoliberalism is it offers you this particular kind of devil's choice where you're just about free enough, like a, like every good Christian subject of original sin, you're just about free enough to be responsible for your actions. So, you know, if you can't get a job, then it's your fault. And so you should be mm-hmm. disciplined by a welfare system that shouldn't just give you a check, but should uh, should punish you for not searching hard enough for a job. But you're right. not free enough to transform your collective conditions of existence to, to, to do the mm-hmm. old work of revolution. And that seems to me is the bind that we inhabit. And, and that, that book by Adam Costco gets at it very well. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. And, and you know, it's, it's ironic and, and kind of astonishing, really, that uh, these conversations about how the, the economic patterns of society wind up molding you know, individual psyches, uh, especially the ones that we've been talking about today, were, were they were happening before the internet, before the digital society kind of arose. And if economic logic was pervasive and contagious, it was the teabag that would spread prior to the internet. I, I cannot imagine how to quantify the degree to which this process whereby society is remade in the image of its economic form and so individuals as well get, gets amplified by the digital technology. Um, you know, now via our phones, our computers, our screens, there's hardly a moment in which we are buffered and separate from those forces. Um, but you also have p- folks like uh, Paul Mason, for example, in his book on post-capitalism, who believe that network to technology so deeply subverts the, the logic of capitalism that it will lead to the transcendence of capitalism altogether. And I, and I like setting up this kind of contrast where you can see technology is almost neutral and, and can either decay our minds and facilitate or facilitate the, our liberation, depending on what we do with it. And I think this matters or depends a lot on the incentive structures underneath the, the production of technology. But what do you make of the role that technology today plays in the construction of the self? Are you optimistic that we can leverage our kind of vast and newfound technological capacities to create environments that support and nourish the development of richer and kinder and and more desirably uh, formed selves? Or are you more skeptical of our being able to kind of redirect technology in that direction? Um, there is just so much to say about this. I mean, I'm always reminded of the opening of chapter 15 of volume one of Capital, where Marx is in dialogue with Mill, uh, who had expected that uh, increasing technology would give us a life of, of increased leisure. Mm-hmm. Keynes in 1930 predicted the same thing. And of course, Marx is pretty crude and simple point. Uh, uh, the outset, it becomes much more interesting in the rest of the chapter, by the way, but is uh, is technology is not the actor. Um, uh, the particular set of social relations that govern the application of the technology is the actor. Mm. Um, and mm-hmm. so there's an easy Marxist response to the argument Paul Mason makes, which is to say he gives great primacy to the developing forces of production without thinking about the particular relations of production that organize their application. Um, mm. But you might want to deepen the point beyond that. Interesting work on platform capitalism, on these kind of apps and, and th- that you mentioned. Cernicek and Williams have this book on platform capitalism. But perhaps more darkly, Richard Seymour has this amazing, very brilliant writer, has this amazing book 
about Twitter, the Twittering machine, um, mm. which I think implicitly Seymour means to suggest, well, it becomes explicit at points, means to suggest that it isn't simply a case of technology as a neutral actor, which can then be mobilised by different uh, 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 political and social subjects to their own ends. Because the particular kinds of technologies that you get are also the result of the forms of social power that exist in the world. Um, mm. So that it might not be enough to ask for the social ownership of, you know, the nationalisation of Facebook is the kind of demand that Senator and Williams point towards, or that Wendy Liu in her book on Silicon Valley, I think, points towards. Um, it might be worth thinking about how the technologies with which we live, uh, it, it's not just that Mason's too optimistic to think they uh, present the possibility, it's not just that Mason's too optimistic to think that they will organically generate more glorious futures. And instead, it requires political agency to, 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 to leverage them for better futures, because organically, under the control of capital, they won't do that. No, no, the, the story might be even more negative. It might be the particular technologies we have are designed in such a way uh, that they inhibit the easy application of them to um uh to better futures um i also think that there's obviously um a gareth dale has uh written some very tough reviews of aaron bastani's book on fully automated luxury communism that highlight this point andrus marm has recently highlighted similar kinds of points that it's important not to forget challenges of climate and the return of a language of scarcity to the left um, as potential breaks on the technological optimism about cornucopias and abundance. Um, mm. The challenges of climate which seem to make uh, abundance suddenly the language of the right. It's the right that doesn't want to lecture us anymore about scarcity, but wants to tell us that everything is possible and we should just keep growing and keep polluting. And it's the left um, that is that is more anxious about that. Um, mm. And so uh, optimism about technology might be seriously challenged by, uh, by the climate. There's a big debate there about climate, yeah. about whether that's the case or not. Um, and um, uh, the other last thing I would say, though, um, and you can tell that in this conversation, I'm trying to point your listeners towards endless books by people smarter than me. So I keep <laughs> just like raising so many books. And I'm sorry for throwing names in your direction. But I'm interested in a book out soon by Jason Smith called, I think, Smart Machines and Service Work. Um, it's a very mm. interesting guy. And he also suggests, and Aaron Benenev has recently suggested this, and yeah. he has a new book on automation as well, that, that there is a kind of ideological property to all of this language of automation. You know, Benenev and Smith both highlight that the idea of technology as this incipient liberation, which is going to transform everything, is a cyclical uh, narrative. It's not new now. It's, it's, it, there, there have been lots of spates of, of, of anxiety or optimism, dystopias and utopias, about technology and automation uh, in, for, for almost as long as there's been capitalism. People forget this guy Etzler, um, who interests me, who had a kind of fully automated luxury communism picture in the 1830s or 40s. Um, it really isn't new. Um, uh, so Smith highlights not only that it's not new to think about uh, the possibilities of automation, but also that he thinks that a language of massively increasing technology might be ideological in the sense, in Marx's classic sense, of sustaining a, a kind of convenient narrative for a ruling class. So that actually, he thinks, we've lived through a period of massive capitalist stagnation in technological development. That the 1920s to 60s was a period of huge development. And recent developments um, have really been, you know, the smartphone is the, the, the repurposing of various existing technologies into a single device that you can hold in your hand and it doesn't really compare to the uh, in, you know the, the, to electricity or the automobile so i think it's also worth having a slightly critical eye on um discourses about automation that said and i'll finish on this i certainly yeah. welcome and it's why i uh see great possibility actually and i like key aspects of aaron bastani's book that i mentioned I, I think that it's very important for the left to get back 
that spirit that is clearly there in Marx in some recently sort of recovered and celebrated now passages in the Marxist Grundrisse, but it's not just in those passages, to be honest. It's there in his critique of the Gotha program. It's there in Capital. It's there in all kinds of places where Marx doesn't think of post-capitalist society as simply and ultimately a better mechanism for distributing scarcity. He thinks capitalism makes possible the overcoming of scarcity and the possibility of a kind of abundance. Now, what that means, either how you get there or what post-scarcity is, uh, better than has pointed out that it shouldn't be merely in material terms as I've got lots of stuff it might be also different ways of relating to each other but but the idea that capital makes possible um, the overcoming of scarcity and that it's in and this is Bastani's point I think it's in the possibility of the overcoming of scarcity that capital starts to look so outdated over you know as Mark Guzer would have it sort of sort of of the past obsolescent because it might be able to discipline us to do lots of work and develop the productive forces but when they're already really developed productive forces but it's not profitable to automate the nasty work and so it keeps us chained to these nasty forms of work it's clearly obsolescent um, and so it's in the possibility of, of, of abundance that you can generate much of the critique of capitalism and of its social pathologies. And it's important for the left not to lose sight of that possibility and go back to a 20th century mould in which debates between markets and central planning were seen as debates about different ways of administering scarcity and dividing up scarce goods, um, rather than seeing that the possibility of abundance was one of the things that should mark a nail in the coffin of capitalism, because if capitalism can develop productive forces very well, it can't actually uh, give us fulfilled lives in conditions of abundance very well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe with the, one of the last places I'll, I'll want to go here, but I want to bring this back up. I've, I've touched it a few times. Common throughout the, the thinkers that you've guided us through so far is, you know, the perspective that capitalism has or does harm subjectivity, right? It really has been a framing of pathology. And I, I'm really kind of delighted by the idea. And I wonder if we can get to a point where we see the economic production of consciousness as an opportunity rather than a threat, to, to see it as a leverage point, right? The fact that the economy exerts this kind of effect upon our psyches, and yet, in theory, uh, we are in control of the economy, we are designing it to, an, to a degree, means that we are in control of the mechanisms that wind up shaping our minds. And this is, this is surely an optimistic ask, but I wonder if there's going to come a point where we can reclaim the relationship between the economy and the self in a way that we consciously design the economy so as to design the self in a way that is grounded in democracy and flourishing. And, and this is why I brought up economic democracy before, because in this framing, and, and you know, the, the idea of a really kind of radical application of democracy is present in a lot of the people we, we talked about today, um, because a, a truly democratized economy would also be a democratized approach to producing our own selves, whereas the flip side of that is that an undemocratic economy is an undemocratic production of the cells within that economy. And what I want to ask, what I, I want to see what this invokes for you, what it looks like to begin thinking about how we would view and do economics if it was explicitly understood as a system that produces selves, that produces consciousness, that has this subliminal but undeniable quality of production uh, more than material goods, but producing ontologies and ways of being. And you've pointed out that this depends very much on the social relations that underlie production, right? Um, but it, if economics took this responsibility seriously, the ways in which it, it impacts the self, what would need to change in order to to pursue uh, Rousseau's vision of rendering this kind of forced interdependence a condition for our flourishing? What are, and again, you've mentioned these waypoints of, of some of the things we can learn from fully automated luxury communism, and also from some of the more skeptical literature on, on the kind of, you know, automation narrative. But if it depends so much on these underlying social relations, 
what what stands out to you as leverage points available today that we can begin to to really kind of affect meaningful change in that direction? So uh, once again, uh, happily, <laughs> happily, happily on this occasion, um, so much to say. I share your sort of normative instinct that something like control power uh, is, is a good starting point um, and that the common uh, collective active uh, process of subjectivation, democratic, um, is a sort of key normative demand. This is very much to say you should have a left like Rousseau, popular power, popular sovereignty, not a left like Hobbes. You know, we can have a strong mm. state to provide for our, you know, we're not going to be free, but we're going to have a, um, you know, we're going to have, we're going to get some health care that the state gives us. That's yeah. crucial and important. Um, but I think there are deep, deep, deep reasons why why it's insufficient as, as mm. a radical politics, a basis for radical politics. Um, um, that said, I want to highlight, as I highlighted in the case of Rousseau and Durkheim, the problems of a form of politics that, having given up on the idea of the supersession of domination by the commodity structure, seeks to try to harness the commodity structure to some kind of democratic management. So the spread of workers' cooperatives, Richard Wolff has called this mm-hmm. the alternative to capitalism, doesn't get out of those features of capitalist society that we've discussed at such length today, um, whether it's amor pop or anomie or alienate, we call it alienation or, um, uh, you know, the culture industry or, uh, um, it is still subjection to the market, to value, um, uh, rather than social need as the guiding motivating principle of life, even if drive for value is conducted by a workers' cooperative rather than by a private boss. And indeed, Marx himself in the 1844 manuscripts that he writes as a young man in Paris um, has some scathing remarks again about exactly this sort of vision of the world that he associates with Proudhon, mm-hmm. um, uh, in which he says we would all be enslaved to a collective capitalist, which is just ourselves, um, but we're still dominated by the value form. And therefore, we're not really in a condition of the collective uh, construction of our own purposes in the world, um, because it's still this thing called the market that is deciding what we should produce. So uh, I want to raise that note of anxiety about visions of the end of capitalism that don't supersede the market, which isn't to say that 20th century projects to supersede the market filled this question either. It's not just that they were economically inefficient. It's that clearly central planning by a distant bureaucratic state failed uh, on exactly the same test that markets fail. You know, it was, mm-hmm. it was not about um, uh, shaping ourselves and shaping our world uh, actively and in common and democratically at all. So um, I see uh, notes of, of optimism in contemporary politics. I think, for example, about the uh, demands that arose in the latest wave of Black Lives Matter activity around prison abolition and, and police abolition, mm. um, uh, which I, I, I was very interested in. Um, and these are, of course, demands and thinking that go back many, many years. And people like Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Angela Davis have you know, been writing about this stuff for a long time. But I was yeah. interested that this became a mass language lexicon of politics, both because I think uh, it was a very good way of highlighting the idea of radical politics, not simply as a distributional question. I want a bit more of this, though that might be crucial, of course, for people in conditions of objection and poverty, but um, as a demand to end the kind of miserable alienation in which I am forced to compel to see others as a threat to me. Uh, You know, you walk Mm. past a police station, and you look at the posters outside it, and it's just a series of everyone around you is a threat to you. You know, pickpockets, muggers, car thieves. Um, Marx brilliantly described this view of the world and the liberal view of freedom, where freedom is non-interference. Other people don't interfere with me. Marx says, that's a view that makes every man see in every other man uh, the limitation rather than the realisation of his freedom. 
Mm. Um, so I think that the, the, the demand for the abolition of those repressive functions like police and prisons got at that sense of social pathology and also functioned as what Trotsky would have called transitional demands in the sense that they, they made people ask, okay, why can't we abolish the police and prisons? Oh, it's because we have a whole set of social relations of inequality, poverty, in which people then commit crimes and all kinds of, it's not just poverty, all kinds of forms of alienation and miserable subjectivation that turns people to crime. This isn't to say that, you know, crime is necessarily totally eradicable and, and only only produced by capitalism at all, but but, but clearly so much of it is. Um, so, so, so in that sense, these demands, I think, were very good examples of demands in our moments that highlight the existence of pathologies, tie them, not always, but could do so, to capitalism. And that just raises the problem, I think, very deep problem, of generalising the appeal of those demands to people who might now feel protected by the police or by prisons, um, which is the difficulty of the problem of transition that occupies my PhD research, um, mm. you know, which, is, um, uh, which is how you, how you forge a language of, of social transformation in a world in which people's lived reality compels them to be dependent upon the reproduction of a certain kind of social structure, so that the disruption of that social structure is a threat to them. Um, and unless they're living in a condition of total abjection, in which the reproduction of the structure is only oppressive to them, uh, they do have a great deal to lose besides their chains. And the strange new thing since Marx of trying to make the transition between sets of social systems uh, normally a pretty violent process in history into something like a democratic process you know the, the, the peasants weren't consulted on the end of feudalism and their conversion into uh, workers uh, <laughs> uh, but the, the attempt to make the question of transition into uh, and the question of social transformation into an active de- pretty pretty democratic process uh, I think that the question that this example of contemporary uh, exciting demands around police and prison abolition and also the limitations that those demands encounter in generalizing their support highlights both the possibilities and the challenges for thinking about the end of capitalism and the end of its social pathologies uh, in our world today. Yeah. Wow. Wonderful. Well, there are, there are about a million places left to go, uh, especially your, your PhD research as it relates to our conversation today. But I think that would be best to, to leave it here. Um, we've covered an absolutely massive amount of ground. Uh, but you know, lastly, before closing, is there anything that still lingers for you? Anything you'd like to add? Any final word? Um, I think I want to, you know what, I'll say very quickly um, to any skeptical listeners, um, something about why the, the kind of appeal of this language of social pathology and its drawback. Um, you know, I've already said, I've already hinted, I have much more than I could say about this, uh, uh, that, that, that the fact that I'm taking this term from Axel Honneth and others, but I don't always share their particular uh, uses of it and, 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 and approaches to it. Um, I, I won't go into detail about that, but um, I, I think that part of the power of this approach is that it gets you beyond a binary that is very, very common in politics today, perhaps ubiquitous, which is the victim-villain binary. Uh, mm. So, you know, if you're on the, if you're on the right your victims are perhaps today the white working class and your villains are immigrants taking their jobs. I mean, it could be anything. Um, if you're on the left, uh, maybe your villains are the poor and your victim and sorry, your victims are the poor and your villains <laughs> are the rich. That's a real um, new left. Uh, right, right. Uh, yeah, that's a complicated question, but, um, the question of social pathology kind of treats everyone as a victim and treats the problem as as uh, sets of social structures, um, not merely individuals. Um, so the example I always use for this that I used in class um, is uh, I, I, when I was sat watching that interview with Prince Andrew that British mm-hmm. listeners will know well, I imagine, because so many people seem to have watched it, um, in which a member of the royal family um, sits down for a TV interview in which he 
makes pretty clear that he's complicit in acts of child sex trafficking. And it's pretty mm-hmm. calm about doing so. And apparently at the end of the interview, uh, and he says, uh, well, apparently at the end of the interview, he turned to the journalist in question and said, now would you like me to show you a, the, exhi- the exhibition of the Queen's pictures that we have here in the palace? And I think she was kind of open mouthed. You know, he's so relaxed about um, mm-hmm. admitting his complicity in child sex trafficking. Uh, you would think you can have no purer villain uh, than someone like that. And yet when you watched him, uh, talk about how he had to keep associating with this child sex trafficker that he was associating with Jeffrey Epstein because not to do so would have been ungentlemanly or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when he talked about how he was, when he was asked if he had any shame and he said that he was ashamed or embarrassed that he seems to have brought embarrassment upon his family and upon you know the, the image of the British aristocracy. Um, it was clear that he was working with a set of deeply, deeply debased norms around what good behaviour would be, what it, how how one should relate to other people that have such a clear, almost almost absurdly transparent point of origin in the class from which he emerges that is to say its needs and its its form of life as a class is not um collective uh, assistance to others or solidarity with others but instead a deep sense of its own superiority and its need to project a good image of itself in order to be uh, trusted as, as as rulers of the world um that one could quite easily i think see this awful figure prince andrew as a, a victim of a social system of class um, and power, uh, from which he too should be emancipated by the abolition of that absurd thing, the monarchy. Um, that imme- I raise this example because it highlights both the appeal of a language of social pathology, which is um, it moves us beyond merely thinking in terms of victims and villains, but also some of the dangers of a language of social pathology. Because of course, Prince Andrew is a villain as far as uh, the woman or women uh, that, that he abused are concerned. And so it's important to say that, that w- we should have a way of talking about social structure, which produces particular kinds of agency, which nonetheless understands agency as deeply powerful in the world and important and meaningful. Um, and I don't want a language of social pathology to be used in order to think of capitalism simply as um, a process of ubiquitous victimization, uh, where really that victimization of, of people through their subjectivation in pathological ways is an uneven, uh, variegated victimization. And there are some people who, while being deformed and debased and twisted and whatever uh, problematically humanist terms you want to use, uh, those people are also in a position of power and domination over others. And the, the struggle of a, of a politics against social pathology must begin, just as Fanon knew for the anti-colonial struggle, uh, uh, beginning uh, with national independence. Uh, the, the struggle against capitalist social pathology must begin uh, with a struggle to um, uh, overthrow uh, the, those those agentic forces, those class forces, uh, which which rule the world, uh, even while being aware uh, that uh, the problem is deeper than merely their evil activity um, and is structurally generated. Uh, but alas, the work of finding out how to overthrow them, who to overthrow, who's going to overthrow them, and what we're going to replace them with is work that I think is uh, not complete today. Mm. And ongoing, yeah. And we have years to look forward to on that. Um, So for anyone listening, I will have links on the show notes page to some of Barnaby's writing, uh, other interviews that he's done, information on the courses he's taught, and of course, all of the books that we've mentioned throughout the conversation. Uh, Barnaby, thank you so much for coming on. This was, uh, not only was it a blast, but just so informative and such a a helpful tour through what is otherwise sometimes difficult material. So I think it's really going to help open this up uh, to a lot of of people who can take it and run in interesting ways. So thank you so much for spending the time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay. If you have made it to the end here, welcome to the finish line. 
uh, although the, the conversation was really just a series of, of provocations to explore deeper in, in any direction that, that interests you. Uh, you might also be struck by how fast Barnaby is able to speak and how articulate he can remain at that velocity. Uh, that is not a product of my editing. He actually is just brimming with passion and, and erudition on these questions. And it was it was such a delight to work with him on, on platforming and, and bringing that out. Um, barring any surprises, the next episode of the podcast will be with Chris Letheby. He's a philosopher who studies psychedelic experience, integrating the, the latest cognitive science to make sense of, for example, what is happening to consciousness when people take psychedelics, what goes on during something like the experience of ego dissolution, and what that means for our theories of consciousness. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, if you'd like to stay in the loop on new episodes of the podcast, there's a tab on the on the Musing Mind website at the top that says newsletter. That's where I release updates and new episodes and the like. If you would like to get in touch, you can reach out to me on Twitter or there's a, a contact form on the website. And I think this podcast has gone on long enough. Thank you, everyone, for listening and for your support. I'll talk to you next time.